Can you believe there's about another three hours worth of more movie talk? Yes, it's true. This is Jim with Director's Club saying thank you so much for listening. Um, you know that we love you, and we'll probably be back. We'll see. Um, until then, enjoy this conclusion, part two of our 50 favorite movies episode, um, as well as a few upcoming bonus episodes um, from Patrick. So don't fret, folks. We'll see what the future holds in store. Um, this episode fades out. It's kind of cool. All right. That's all. I'm not going to ramble on too long. I promise. You already know my sincere appreciation and gratitude for all of you who are listening right now. You have no idea how much it means to me. Yes, you do. Because I just said so. Hey, Jim, we're halfway through the list. Oh, my God, it's true. What is your number 25? I know we differ on the ending of this movie, but I uh, can't deny it's one of my all-time favorite romantic comedies uh, with one of probably my top five favorite screenplays of all time. Broadcast news. Yes, good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, 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 good. Oh, we should have done this. We should have we should have tried to get the other person to guess. That would be like that, that'd be the way to conclude things because then it's like how well have how much have you been listening? That's true. <laughs> well, I think most people probably are predicting as as they listen. Yeah, yeah. You know, because they know us so well at this mm-hmm. point. But I really uh, I can't get enough of this movie. I've seen it so many times, and Albert Brooks, he's my guy. I relate to him more than most people. I think I just his neuroticism. It's never obnoxious. I just I, I find it really sweet and endearing, and you know he has, the, he has just the right amount. He's funny enough, yeah, that he's never annoying on screen. But mm-hmm. he it's still irritating all the other characters, and you understand where they're coming from. Right. It's really, but yet really I can understand why Meryl Streep loves the guy in defending your life at the same time. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, no, it's there's it's just I mean that's all the characters in this in this film are. They have their flaws and they have their strengths and they're not – none of them are evil people. Right. But they all make bad decisions and they all make good decisions and it's just – I mean actually the movie I'm going to be talking about next is a very similar film. (gasps) What is it? My number 25 is Daisy Kenyon. Mm. The greatest melodrama I've ever seen. That's a good one, man. I bet if I watch it again I'll definitely – because yeah, that was a good episode. Otto Preminger. Otto Preminger's the greatest. Like, Otto Preminger, I had seen none of his films before, and then that if, if, if this podcast has brought me nothing else, it has brought me to Otto Preminger. And The Servant. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, no, there's a bunch of individual films. Yeah, oh, for sure. But Otto Preminger has... He, at one point when I was making my list of potential films to be on this list, like, Otto Preminger had four different movies. I Ad- don't, Advice I think, and Consent. Yes. Anatomy of a no- Murder. Yes. Daisy Kenyon, and then what was the fourth, the fourth one? one? You haven't you haven't seen it, so there's a oh, Fallen Angel. Oh, okay, yeah, I haven't seen it. Great, Fallen Fallen. If you like the Prowler, yeah, Fallen Angel is like the Ritz is like the uh, 
It's like, well, what if the Prowler actually had a budget behind it? <laughs> yeah, it's good. Fallen Angel really... Also, Fallen Angel starts the way that mm. most... Um, <laughs> Fallen Angel starts the way that most Billy Wilder movies start, where the main character <laughs> is, has just, like... The main character gets dragged somewhere via public transportation, and someone's like, do you have any money? And he's like, no. And they go, okay, well, off you go. <laughs> like, it starts the way Ace in the Hole starts. Five Graves to Cairo ends, like, starts with the, a guy crawling out of, like, a tank. Uh, Sunset Boulevard is all about him losing his car right away. Like, it, <laughs> there's nothing about Billy Wilder movies where he does that. Patrick, were you looking at my list when, we were in the, when I was in the bathroom? Did you cheat? No, I didn't cheat. Is Sunset Boulevard your next one? No, 24 is Ace in the Hole. Oh, okay, cool. That's kind of funny. But anyway, yeah. Daisy Kenyon, uh, in best melodrama ever. Mm-hmm. Shockingly modern for what it is, but also very much uh, melodramatic. It's brilliant. It's so fucking good. You and Mike D'Angelo love that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike D'Angelo turned me on to it. Or not personally, but I read his yeah. review. <laughs> I will say that um, with the limited correspondence I've had, and especially since I invited him to come on the show... Which he didn't reply to, but he did reply to my inquiry about the uh, about the ending of Faults. So I was very happy that he replied to my question. What, Mike D'Angelo? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that was nice of him to do. It was a one-sentence email, but hey, I got yeah. a reply from probably my favorite critic writing today. Um, yeah, so 24 is Ace in the Hole. Billy Wilder. Uh, one of two Billy Wilder movies on my list. And this one is by far the darkest. <laughs> Shocking movie for its time, I'm mm-hmm. sure. And uh, a really interesting commentary and satire. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of things that still hold true today, um, you know, even looking at something like Nightcrawler, even though that's not what that movie is about, the, just the uh, influence of media, uh, you know, hyping something up and focusing on the uh, drudgery, the negative details of what's taking place. Um, Kurt Douglas is fucking phenomenal in this movie. And there's moments that I'll never forget. Um, again, one of two movies where a female gets slapped that genuinely like unnerves me, mm-hmm. and it's probably because like I just would not expect that coming from this period of time. But uh, Billy Wilder's writing is just—I feel like to... I expect females to get slapped more at that period oh, of time. In okay, film. well maybe. You know what I mean? Just because like it was like a female gets hysterical, and then a man's like, "Snap out of it! Hold yourself together! Slap!" Yeah, like, I think they're in Maltese Falcon. He slaps someone. <laughs> Maybe it's because uh, as a kid I grew up watching Dennis the Menace and Make Room for Daddy and Donna Reed show like all these black and white idyllic environments. Okay, so you uh, your idea of the fifties is informed by fifties or sixties television, right? Pretty much, pretty much. I Until guess, yeah, I, I saw like Douglas Cirque like... and all these other stuff, yeah. but still, um, yeah. Ace in the Hole. What can you say? Ace in the Hole. I will say, I. I will have to disagree with you that it's his darkest movie. His darkest movie is my number 10. So we'll get to there. Uh, Take a drink every time I sound like Scooby-Doo. Yeah, right. Exactly. My number 24 is uh, Pulp Fiction. It's Pulp Fiction. What's your number 23? Carnival of Souls, which I imagine is probably higher on your list. It is. Um, Definitely one of my new top five favorite horror movies. I didn't realize it was so high up there. It is now. Tell me what you like about Carnival of Souls, Everything. (laughs) But... The organ score just, um, again, when she's wandering through town and is not able to connect with anybody, like she's practically invisible, 
um, I know what I know that feeling, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it speaks to me on some deeper level that's outside of like, well, this is a good movie about uh, you know a ghost and or you know just kind of a creepy gothic horror movie of sorts. It's just there's something more emotionally resonant for me um, watching it. I think this past Halloween, yeah, I just, I... it shot up way higher in my mind. Um, and as much as I like saw the tw- the twist coming at the end. It still affected me. I think I saw. I think I. I really got it. I, so I saw this in high school, and I thought it was like that was a pretty fun but super dumb uh, horror movie, old horror movie. Like yeah, and I think that's, when even, I was, that's even Ebert's review. Yeah. Uh, so he's like, yeah, it was fine. For and then what I it think was. it was. I, I think it was like a couple years ago. I got the Criterion DVD and I watched it again, and then suddenly I was like, oh, this is about depression. I mean, it could. I mean, it could also just be yeah, about. You can interpret it. It could be. Yeah, you can be interpreted a lot of ways. It's that kind of movie. But like, when I, the what I got out of it was very much just like what you were saying, where it's just like, oh, this is what it feels like to be oppressed, depressed. Mm-hmm. When she's just like, I don't know what's real anymore. Right. I don't belong in this world anymore. Like that's like, oh, okay, I know mm-hmm. what's going on here. I love Carnival Souls. Um, my number twenty three is Carrie. Uh, <gasps> Absolutely brilliant horror movie. It's the perfect, perfect mode for De Palma to be in because the plot is so simple that he can't fuck it up, and the emotions are so big, and everything about it's so operatic. But it feels valid in some way because it's about high schoolers. Yes, it's about high school. That's a good point, and it's kind of ironic that there's not a De Palma movie on my list. And no, there's one on yours. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I I've always I, loved be Carrie. Higher. No, it should be higher in my mind. I I do love it as much as most people. Mm-hmm. So, what's your twenty-two? It's a movie that I don't think you've seen yet. Mm-hmm. I'd be very curious to hear your take on it. It's Mike Lee's Naked. With uh, I got to see all of Mike an, Lee's movies with incredible, like the uh, the most intense portrayal of self-destruction I've ever seen with one of the best acting performances by David Doolis. It's just... It's a hard movie to sit through. There's, there's, there's so many... rape, there's... Uh, there's just so much shit, dark shit in this movie yeah. that you have to be prepared. You have to, like, say, okay, I'm in the mood for a Mike Lee movie. I can handle it right now. <laughs> I've, I've only seen one Mike Lee movie, and in classic Patrick tradition, it was the one that you don't see. You're not... It's not the one that you're supposed to see. I saw Happy Go Lucky. Yeah, that's all right. Which is... Yeah, exactly. I was like, that's fine. Yeah. Um, he's see, much darker. I want to see that. naked. I want to see secrets and lies. Um, and another year. Another year. That's right. Yeah, which is another movie I think could have been on this list. But there's something about naked. There's something about every performance. There's just every interaction. And it's really not a lot. Of, it's not about anything other than self destruction. It's just yeah. about a guy, whether intentionally doing it or not. It just sort of happens. Um, if, organically happens to this one character and you follow him through all these different environments and different people. Apparently the the main character in Naked was an inspiration um, for Greta Gerwig for Francis Ha. Um, the main wow. character in that. That's interesting. Yeah. Francis Ha is not as dark. No, no, I wouldn't <laughs> imagine what, what you said. I don't think she drinks nearly as much. Um, yeah, it's... You'll know, like, from the opening scene, like, what you're in for. Yeah. But it's just, it's by far my favorite Mike Lee movie. And uh, he's one of my favorite filmmakers that I've, i just seen most of his movies once, probably because, like, I, yeah. it's going to take a while for me to go. There are, some, there are some filmmakers who they make movies that I think are incredible, but 
I never go back and revisit them because they're so draining. Yes. Um, and it's just, it's unfortunate. I mean, you can look at my list that I've listed so far, and it predominantly is films that are not that. It's predominantly films that I can return to again and again. And it's sort of an unfortunate thing. Um, also, predominantly, these are films that are uh, in English. I have very few non-English languages. I was realizing that when I was making this list, I'm like, Jesus, like, I, there's like no foreign language films on this list. No E2 Mama Tambien? Maybe there's E2 Mama okay, Tambien, okay. but there's very few. Okay. I think there are two English uh, foreign films on this list, but... Uh, oh my God, I don't know if there's any. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's something that we both we both are very American cinema kind yeah. of oriented. That's just sort of how we are. Like, even when we go out and we do, like, Fassbinder, we're like, ah, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>, I <laughs> guess. <laughs> I'm, like, there are things about this I love, but this isn't speaking to me. Um, but Pedro Almodovar is a filmmaker that I've grown to love more and more as time has gone on. Yeah, I yeah. should put a movie of his on my list. Yeah. Didn't. Uh, yeah, well, I didn't either. Um so let's see. Uh, my number twenty-two is Rushmore. It's Rushmore. Oh yeah, yeah. We talked about Rushmore. Everybody loves it. What's your number twenty-one? It's another movie I hope that people have finally come around to loving as much as Pulp Fiction, but it's Jackie Brown. Uh, barely. I had to choose between the two. I know. I chose Pulp Fiction, and I chose Jackie Brown. Yeah, I've, I've probably watched it more at this point. As much as like Pulp Fiction came out three years sooner, mm-hmm. and it had a cultural impact it uh was responsible for me becoming a movie nerd sort of all over again uh yeah i just there's something about revisiting these characters and i think it sort of hit me once uh when i was living in michigan and cleaning my room and putting this movie on and like realizing how much i love spending time with these people even if it's just like overhearing their conversations Mm -hmm. and even even the bad ones even beaumont or yeah. not Beaumont, uh, even uh, Roby. Right, right. And, oh my God, like just the scenes between Robert Forster and Pam Greer, some of the best uh, in Quentin Tarantino's entire um, it's, filmography. It's funny how occasionally Quentin Tarantino, for someone who makes movies that are so similar to each other and has such a very specific thing he's doing, it's funny how occasionally he'll do something and you'll... You'll just sort of realize there's this other side to Tarantino that you never knew. That was a genuine surprise when I saw this movie. Yeah. And a lot of people were turned off by it. People were just like, it's too slow, hardly anything happens. Yeah. They wanted to pull fiction the black exploitation yeah, years. pretty much. Yeah. But it's, some, it's about something more. It's about it growing old mm-hmm. and trying to come to terms with that. But it's everybody's fantastic in this movie. So my number 21... Oh, uh, yeah. my number 21 is An American Werewolf in London. I think it's a perfect horror comedy. I think it is maybe the only horror comedy that is both scary and funny. Um, Usually, they're just funny. That's a good call. American Werewolf in London is... I adore that movie. Yeah. One of of David Robert Mitchell's favorites. So now we're in our top 20. Another great horror comedy, but it's more funny. And it's also responsible for turning me into a movie nerd at one point, and that's Evil Dead 2. It's great. Yeah, it's Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. My, it, my second or third favorite director. And what, are there other movies that are like Evil Dead 2 that you... that Like, what is it that separates Evil Dead 2 from, say, Drag Me to Hell or Phantasm <laughs> 2? It's a very 
on the surface thing, but the camera work, I'm in love with everything about it. I think that there's moments in this movie where I've never seen a camera do what the camera does. Well, I mean, Drag Me to Hell has that stuff too, though, right? Yeah, not as balls to the wall, over the top, sure. and goofy. It, it, it doesn't commit the right. way that Evil Dead... The, the, the advantage of Evil Dead, the advantage of those first two Evil Dead movies is that there is no plot. Um, yeah. You get the setup, but then once shit starts going down, it just never stops. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has, you know, crazy physical slapstick, but it doesn't resort to what they do in Army of Darkness towards literally Three Stooges yeah. stuff. Um, and I don't know. I mean... It's not as hokey. <laughs> it's it's just when I think of movies that kind of changed my life in some weird way, it's Evil Dead 2 has to be up there because mm-hmm. I saw it didn't know what to make of it. My mom came down and said, turn that shit off! We're taking it back! And then, of course, I wound up seeing it, like, a month later, and I fell in love with it. I just And, oddly enough, like, my dad, who hated horror movies, and probably because he loved comedies, he loved Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness. And a lot of that has to do with the charm of Bruce Campbell, but it's just an inventive horror movie. Mm -hmm. It really is. It's really... And yet, so simple. Yeah, it's... it, It just... There is, I mean, what's funny is that I, I say there's a sense of fun behind the camera, but apparently uh, Evil, or I guess more Evil Dead than Evil Dead 2, but apparently both those movies, just because they're low budget and they had to do so yeah. many crazy things, like those were grueling shoots. Oh yeah, that's what he said. But you really get a sense, it is, it's very rare, in fact it might only be Evil Dead 2, in which you get that trauma movie kind of feeling of like these yeah. are just a bunch of friends fucking around with a camera but also it doesn't look like crap right <laughs> you know yeah, exactly. like you watch Toxic Avenger and you're like this is really endearing because it just seems like people messing around with the mm-hmm. camera but this is also but like part of that is also that this is just the shoddiest looking movie I've ever seen right well, it's a, you know clearly a step up. It's sort of a remake of sorts of the original, and I yeah. know that people go like, well, the original's scarier. This one finds the right balance. I think they both find good balance. I mean, I definitely... I think I may prefer Evil Dead 2 to Evil Dead 1 as well. But I think that they both find their own balance. Mm-hmm. For, for, which, so what's crazy is they're essentially the same movie. But they both occupy very different spaces in my, in my mind. And I don't... Right. And usually when a filmmaker makes two movies that are so similar, you can just be like, well, Goodfellas is better than Casino. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, like, Evil Dead 1 and Evil Dead 2, it's just like... it. Despite them being basically the same movie, it feels like apples and oranges because it's just that little bit of difference and that 100% commitment from Raimi. Yeah. Which I really hope he taps into again. And that's why, like, Drag Me to Hell is so refreshing and so wonderful, and I love seeing it. But I'm just like, come on, Sam, give us back Well, that. Drag Me to Hell didn't make any of the money at the box I know, office. I know. Like, it's every sad. time he makes one of those movies and people don't come out and support it, I think it's also responsible for Alison Lohman quitting acting. Really? I think. Well, I mean, she probably just had a kid and stopped, but she hasn't been in anything since. Yeah, well, she's good in it. Yeah, she's really good. My number 20 is um, probably... It, it has historical significance on this podcast, if only because this is the first point um, in the podcast history where I felt like... I felt super strongly about a movie that other people didn't care about, and I just sort of like just soldiered on. And I, over the years, I've, I've like I've had very a lot of different sort of uh, you know wildly different opinions than the status quo of what movies are great, and what movies aren't, and stuff. But and it's House of the Devil. Yeah, and it's House of the Devil. It's my favorite movie to hate. 
<laughs> it's Martha Marcy May Marlene. <gasps> yeah. This is the movie I was referring yeah. to earlier as far as being inspired by repulsion. It's very much Good a call. similar thing about PTSD. Um, it's actually really similar to the number one movie I'm going to be listing, but in a in a less uh, intense way for me. But it is it's such a disorienting and really upsetting and scary experience. It's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. I've never in terms of psychology, yeah. And in, ter- in terms of it being about cults too, um, it's definitely one of the most effective movies. And third viewing, it's it's one of my favorite movies now. It, um, it'd make my top one hundred probably, and that's shocking because like I didn't warm up to it at first. Uh-huh. But watching it more and more, I can see why you respond to this movie so strongly. It will. It's not even necessarily that I look at it literally in terms of like the psychology of this character or the scary idea of cults to me the thing that is really really hard to get across in film because unless you just use extensive voiceover and stuff you can't get access a person's mind so kind of abstract concepts are often very hard to depict dramatically Mm -hmm. but this movie depicts like existential terror in a very very dramatic way like the plot of this movie is about someone who has no identity I just wonder if that was... I mean, again, can't speculate on director intent at yeah. all, but I just wonder if that's what he set out to do. Because it just seems like a very simple post-traumatic stress cults story, but yet it taps into something deeper. Like Pulse taps I, into something deeper. Yeah, I, I mean, Pulse should have been in my top 50, but um, uh, speaking of foreign films. But I think it is something he set out to do, because I think, I think the movie focuses so much on her identity and her... And it's not so much about we did terrible things to people and it's not so much they did terrible things to me when I was in the cult. It's not so much like those very standard just sort of we killed people, I was raped. Like the things that are 100% understandable to anyone like, oh yeah, that's, those are terrible things. Mm-hmm. It's more like the social faux pas when they're, her sister and stuff have a party and she's just freaking out at the waiter and like or when she just starts skinny dipping in the lake and it freaks everyone out. Like there's, it's the terror in it is so domestic. Um, to me, like the scariest parts aren't in the cult because in the cult she at least thinks that she belongs until the end. Like mm-hmm. in the cult, you know, she doesn't understand the terrible things that are happening to her. It's once she leaves the cult, suddenly she is. It's that's when everything goes wrong. I mean, yeah. in Repulsion, I mean, Repulsion is the same way. Repulsion, you don't get a flashback scene to where she was abused. I mean, it's implied that she was abused just enough so that you understand what is happening at all. So it's not right. just like some random thing. Yeah, probably the only thing I don't like is that like, okay, let's pan over to a shot of the father kind of a thing. Yeah, there, but, uh, there's like a photograph of, yeah. the, of the father or something like that in Repulsion. So like what's really scary about Repulsion is like this damage has been done to you. Now go into the real world. And you're going to be fine for a while, but something's going to set you off on this very terrible course in the wrong direction. And Martha Marcy May Marlene is, Hmm. I mean, and also Martha Marcy May Marlene sort of primed me for my number one film in the terms of its expressionistic editing. And it does a lot of things just the way it tells the story are just things that I've just grown to realize. Like, that's just how I like stories to be told. They're not necessarily 
better or worse, but I just respond more when stories are just told in flashes and glimpses of images and stuff. Yeah, that's an interesting point. If, I, if I'm going to be honest, it should be higher up. But I wonder if I wonder how criminals being released from prison would feel about this movie too. Yeah, like just having to adjust to the real I, world. Again. There could be a Martha Marcy May Marlene kind of movie about that exact topic. Yeah. I'm sure. That's interesting. Um, but I just ha- I had to look up if this director is doing anything because it's tw- it's been like five four yeah five that was years. like 2010 11 yeah 2011 he's doing the Janis Joplin biopic I don't know how I feel about that that's sad um, but apparently he did a miniseries so I'm gonna try and track that what's down. that miniseries called Southcliff I've never heard of it but it came out after Marthy Marcy so Martha Marcy May Marlene you may not like it it's an incredible film. Yeah. Um, I've grown to love it. Yeah. What's your number 19? It's Mulholland Drive. Yeah? It's my favorite David Lynch movie now. What makes it your favorite David Lynch movie? Naomi Watts, Silencio sequence. Um, I know people like rag upon, yeah, it was a TV pilot, so it's not quite as visually stunning, or you can tell when the separation occurs. Yeah. Um, There's something about it. That has stuck with me over time that it's kind of hard to describe. It's more of a feeling movie again. It's yeah, more of yeah. a movie that like I just feel a so lot. So it is the it's more the abstractions. Yeah. Because it is it's sort of at the very edge as far as you have the David Lynch uh re- <laughs> you have the David Lynch kind of relatable films of uh on one end there's straight story and then it mm-hmm. sort of goes Twin Peaks and then Blue Velvet and then it's sort of well, Holland Drive is right at the edge before you go off the cliff with Lost Highway or Wild at Heart, but it's yeah. But or you did like in the, the ab- in but Empire it is the abstractions and stuff that you really like about that movie. Yeah, one hundred percent. Like I even just love. I don't even know what point or what he's trying to say with the guy behind the restaurant, but I love it. Like there's just even if this was a series of set pieces, or like David Lynch's greatest hits or something, I love every. I like everything yeah. about it. Like there's nothing. That just feels, on a moment-to-moment basis, it's yeah, so strong for you. Absolutely. That absolutely. even though you don't necessarily... Do you have a theory about what it's about? or Other than, I think, just the basics of identity crisis slash um, unrequited love. Sure. You know, the basic themes that I think anyone would pick up on. The only minor thing is that uh, you can tell that Robert Forrester and the other cop were going to probably be... <laughs> You know, more central to the story, but they're literally just introduced at the very beginning. And you don't ever see them again, mm-hmm. and I guess that would have been, you know, like a, a sort of a consequence of the film not becoming or the, the TV pilot not becoming a series. But like, that's minor. Like everything else, I just love. I really do. Yeah, I think it's, it's funny because I am someone I because I I checked out uh, out Obsessions that was near where I used to live. It's a video store near where I used to live. They had a bootleg of. Which I'd love to see. The pilot cut of Mulholland Drive. It is online. Okay. It, it's been taken down and put up and taken down. So, like, you search torrent sites or whatever. You'll find it. Um, it's not that different from just the first hour up to them finding the key in the closet. Hmm. Um, there's a little bit of different stuff. There's a little bit of scenes that were cut out, um, but very minor. But as someone who does actually think that it works better as a pilot than a film, I will say that the things that you said, like, I... I think it's a beautiful fucking movie. It is. I don't think it looks like television. I don't even think it's on Blu-ray yet. No, it, a lot of those movies just aren't. Yeah, it sucks. That's a shame. But uh, and I do think that 
the way that he decided to divide it um, between the pilot and what comes after and stuff was really smart. Yeah. Um, it's I. It's, it's it's a really good movie. It's like the I don't know. He he taps into something and I can't even explain what it is. And it, it's like for a while I was just like really is it trying is not it, to love is it, it. Fear is it scary for you? Partially. Um, and because for me, like Blue Velvet, uh, there's parts of it where I'm just like I'm I'm kind of lost. I don't know what's happening. But for me, the 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 feeling of fear in that it's such a scary movie that yeah and I had this weird theory because I never cried until like the third time I saw it during the Silencio sequence and I was trying to figure out why and I couldn't but yet at the same time I do have to acknowledge that I saw this movie as my dad was dying yeah. <laughs> and there might be just like something subconsciously tapping into like this feeling that. of letting go yeah yeah probably there's there's something about that sequence too that like really feels powerful to me more and more over time um but it's yeah I, i'm i'm really surprised this has become my favorite david lynch movie because i was i walked out of that movie going that was that wasn't that was like yeah. david lynch light or it was like him trying to do lost highway all over again uh other than naomi watts i didn't really love it and then more we watched it i i, I loved it so that's really cool it is cool. Yeah, what a, you what a cool story. I know, and th- you can listen to the David Lynch episode. It's sure. pretty good. Um, my number 19, we actually did an episode on this director, but we didn't talk about this movie barely at all. Uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yeah, you're right. We should have. that. Um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is just simply one of the greatest screenplays of all time with two of the greatest performances of all Three of the Richard greatest performances Burton. of all time. Richard yeah. Burton and Elizabeth Taylor are fucking dynamite throughout this whole thing. Oh, God, yeah. It is just... It is every time you walk into a sort of bedroom drama uh, like this of that is you know that's based on a play. This is what you hope to get out of it. It is it's amazing. This was Mike Nichols' first film because it's utterly gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The way everything is staged, like that is I think actually something that is a strength of his that he brought from the theater and something that kind of lost once his movies became more uh, like he just. You know, once he sort of hit the graduate New Hollywood thing of jumping around and stuff, this became less important. But uh, his blocking in that that movie is incredible. If you ever want to, if you're a director or a filmmaker, you want to be, and you want to know what am I supposed to do with this with this scene where people are having conversation and keep it interesting, just watch (laughs) Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf a hundred times and The Servant. Servant is very very good at that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But. I think Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf because it's nothing but that it is and it's never dull it's so beautiful the black and white photography is amazing it's an amazing movie it's it's kind of self-evident though so I, I don't feel I can add much to the conversation other than it is the it is a great 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 play done in the best possible way which you can't even really say about I don't know something like Glengarry Glen Ross which is just when you watch hmm. that movie or at least when I watch that movie, I kind of feel like this is really great, and I like that the director kind of stood out of, stayed out of the way. But it's still but a play. But you can kind of feel that it's this would be better as a play. Um, whereas Who's Afraid of Virginia right. Woolf, I think, works uh, for something that's so stage bound. Like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, it's every bit as powerful um, and immediate and yeah. intense, which is very hard to pull off. Um, 
everyone in who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Again, I think of John Cassavetes too, like how he's yeah. able to do blocking so well. And the, but John Cassavetes, his writing, is, raw. He, yeah, his writing is way different. Like, yeah, the thing about the screenplay for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is the the dialogue is so sharp. The it has that stagey kind of a thing where when characters mm-hmm. overlap, when characters are talking over each other, it's not Robert Altman where it's just like several things happening at once and it's up to you to decide. It's very, very carefully choreographed what lines go over what oh, lines yeah. go over what lines. And like, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is just this fucking sharpened dagger. Um, whereas like John Cassavetti's movies, I was going to say they're blunt instruments, but that's not correct at all. But they're <laughs> just, they're more emotionally... It's more blunt force trauma. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> it's just so real and so devastating. And there, there is – how did it – how did I – well, I, I know why because it's the way I made my list. But there's no John Cassavetes movies on my top 50. But mm. I was very close to putting my favorite John Cassavetes movies. Instead, I put Who's Very Virginia Woolf. Um, hey, can, we do a, can we do a check? Uh, how's the man in the alley doing? Is he there? He's gone. He could oh. be anywhere. It's Shut like up. it follows. Oh no! He could be. He could be in the kitchen. You know? Shh. No, that's actually true. The, uh, the our back door. Oh god! Is broken. The lock doesn't latch. <laughs> well, it, as long as there's two exits, we'll be fine. Okay. Well, I'm just saying our our other exit is intercepted by the kitchen door. There. Hmm. You see, the the listeners have no idea what I'm talking about. But basically, if the it follows demon were, were to walk into this room, we would have to run past it. We couldn't run away from it. So, I mean, we're doomed. We might as well just try to make this the best we can okay. before we're devoured. Number 18 is Back to the Future. <laughs> hey. What has made Back to the Future stand the test of time for you? It's probably the movie I've watched of, the most in my entire yeah, life. Yeah, because these kind of light comedies, they're the kind of movies that you always put on, but often oh my God, they I diminish. Didn't, I didn't put Groundhog Day on my list. Yeah, Fuck. neither did I. What's wrong with me? I should be shot. So what has made Back to the Future stand the test of time for you? And also, can you give me an estimate of how many times you think you've seen this? Oh, Jesus. Once a year since 1985? When you first saw it... Wait, is it... When when you first had it on video, did you watch it multiple times in a year? Are we at the 30th anniversary of Back to the Future? 85, yeah, I guess so. Oh, my God. Hmm. So I probably have seen it at least 40 times, I think. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Because I think there have been years I've seen him more than once. That's heavy. So, <laughs> good one. Great Scott. <laughs> um, this movie is definitely one of the funniest. Two of the most memorable characters ever. And I love what it says about getting to meet your parents. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what does this movie say, really? I guess I just, I don't know, like, realizing, because there's certain instances where he gets to interact with both of his parents and realizing he's a part of them, and, like, they're very similar people, like, it, when he's sitting down with lunch with his dad, and he talks about writing, Crispin Glover's telling him about how he's writing these stories, and he doesn't think anybody would like them, and that's how Michael J. Fox felt about his music. Yeah. So I liked, and also, every little detail in this movie is used in some way that ties into the plot. Like, mm-hmm. even him just running over a pine tree Stable later pine. on. Ball, ball. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's the thing. Like, it's one of the best screenplays ever written. And it doesn't set... Like, 
talk about a blending of genres that just works so beautifully. Um, you know, with uh, science fiction, comedy, and these are from the guys who wrote used cars. <laughs> you know, and yeah. so it has, which I like, still haven't seen, by the way. Like so. it's, it still has these moments of really broad comedy, thanks to Christopher Lloyd, but it's also really endearing and it's, really it's, sweet, it's deceptively smart. Yeah, you don't think it's as smart as it is because it has that high concept thing that a lot of comedies in the eighties had. Exactly, but not a lot of. Com- I mean, Ghostbusters is one of the funniest movies ever made, but Ghostbusters doesn't have an intricate. And I, I obviously don't remember going all the way back, but I'm pretty sure it tapped into some sort of zeitgeist at the time. It must have, because yeah. it was like, I think it was one of the first movies I remember being, pl- like, I, I know I saw it twice in the theater, but it was in the theaters for a long time. Like, I don't know if it came out in the summer and it was long long into the fall, it was still playing or something? Like I, know I believe, well, especially back then, movies played way longer. Yeah, no, that's true. But I just remember thinking... I've just seen a classic. Yeah. You know, and that's, it hasn't happened that often in my life other than. Especially not Hollywood films. It's hard to walk away feeling like I just saw a classic. Right. Exactly. And Robert Zemeckis will never make anything as good as Back to the Future. As much as I love Hugh Frayne Roger Rabbit, I think that's still your favorite, but. Yeah. Back to the Future has a special place in my heart because it's also the first movie that made me want to go see every movie in the theater that I could. I there's something there's something transitional about Back to the Future for me as well because I remember renting it because it was a cartoon series. It was oh, a, that's weird. It was like a Saturday morning <laughs> cartoon in the early '90s. After after Back to the Future three came out, they were like, "Oh, wait a second! These don't they don't have to go back to just to find to discover what happened to their parents in different timelines. They can just be wacky Bill and Ted." Okay, yeah. I think there's probably a Bill and Ted cartoon series too. Uh, but Probably. so there was a Back to the Future cartoon series, and so my church actually had a video store in it. <laughs> if you believe that, uh, it had like eighty VHS tapes that you could rent, mm. and so I rented Back to the Future from my church. And I remember thinking like, this is going to be a fun kids movie or whatever, because I just thought of it as a kids franchise. And then it's like, son of a bitch, Jesus Christ, you right. disintegrated Einstein. <laughs> Shit, it's the Libyans. And I was just like, whoa. And yeah. then I, that was sort of what made me realize that like movies, because I because I was you know I was like six at the time, and I was thinking like, oh wow, this is a movie for adults, but it's still cool, and I still like it. So therefore, yeah. and it's really sweet without being overly sappy. Yeah, it. Again, a lot of these things just, especially with comedies, they just come down to a really, really tricky balance. Yeah, um, that movie gets it right. And yeah. it's just so rewatchable. It's one of those remote droppers. Yeah, if it's on cable, I'm watching it. <laughs> That's a, I've never heard the term remote dropper. <laughs> I don't know. Why. I'm, I don't, maybe I've heard it before, but um, yeah, you heard it here first. That's uh, great. Yeah, my number eighteen is Itu Mama Tambien. <gasps> One of two foreign films. Take a drink every time I make that noise, too. Jesus. One of two foreign films on my list. It is... um, It is just... Number one, stylistically, the way... uh, The way Caron uses his camera and the way it just kind of wanders around is brilliant. It's so good. It is Hmm. so important. And it is... So basically, this movie started out... It, this movie actually makes more sense once you know how it was made, which is this movie was a script that Corone and his brother wrote together because they are writing partners. Huh. Um, and they wrote it, and it was just a sex comedy. They were just like, let's just write something that we can sell because um, we want to make a movie. So they wrote this sex comedy, and, like, and this is like earlier in the 90s or whatever. 
and it was just about these two guys who are horny for this one older woman and then she goes with them and her reason for going with them was I think that she was like some sort of free spirited whatever and it was just like what it was just dumb and then when they returned to the screenplay they realized like well what what reason would she have for going on this and then they came up with the cancer reason and then suddenly they began to realize mm-hmm. that this story had all these other implications if they just did it um, so it is about it's a coming of age story but the audience knows it's a coming of age story long before the characters do because the characters think they're in the sex comedy but every once in a while the sound will just cut out and the narrator will just talk about someone who got killed in a traffic accident and how that relates to the the class differences yeah. in Mexico and how their class differences are undermining their friendship without them even realizing <laughs> it. And it, it... It sneaks up on you in it's, that way. It sneaks up on you. Well, huh. I mean, it certainly sneaks up on them, but it's so also... it. So it has that... It has a political angle. It's a movie sure. about class, but it's also... It has an understanding of of adolescence and just being an adolescent boy and just being fucking gross. <laughs> like Yeah, talking just, about coming of age with yeah, the Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like it's just you're you're fucking gross and and when you're that age and it understands that and it there's a naturalism to uh, Diego Luna and Gail Garcia Bernal's performances that is really incredible. And everything about that movie is everything I love. I love Itumama Tembian. I could watch it endlessly. I definitely I've definitely watched it more times than any other foreign film because foreign language films are the sort of things that you can't put on while you're doing something else because you have to see the subtitles. Mm -hmm. So, like, those are movies that you are limited. You can put on Die Hard while you're cleaning anytime, but you can't put on Ichimama Tambien necessarily. So, but Ichimama Tambien I've just seen a lot because I... I'm obsessed with it. It's amazing. So I think I like Children of Men just a little bit more. It was on my list but, as well. Uh, but hearing you describe it, Itumama Tambien, yeah. No, ultimately, Children of Men is a little preachy. It's like a tad bit preachy for me to consider it one of my favorite all-time movies. And again, the <laughs> way I made my the way I made my list, I didn't put Children of Men versus my favorite movie from the 40s, I put Children of Men versus my favorite movie from that decade. Sure. So, it didn't... Yeah, that makes sense. But, so, like, Children of Men is necessarily not one of my it's favorite so movies. It's just so visceral and, like, yeah, yeah, fucking it's intense. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Ch- Ch- don't oh. get me wrong. Children of Men's incredible. Yeah. Um, Gravity's incredible, too, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't Corona have much of a political incredible. angle, but, you know, that's no, fine. I, but, I mean, I like that. I like yeah. that. I like that Corona can just make a great roller coaster ride movie mm-hmm. as well. Like, it... That's the thing. Like when I think of gravity, I think of like that's, you know, uh, that's what I want. A, a dumb Hollywood blockbuster. If a if a Hollywood blockbuster is not really going to make me feel anything other than excited, I'd rather it be Gravity or Snowpiercer or or, or well Snowpiercer. There's a little bit more to it. But, yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. But but or or like Blue Ruin. Like when I saw Blue oh, Ruin, yeah. I was like, if I was if I just want to see a low budget B action movie, I wish it was Blue Ruin. I wish it wasn't Taken. You or know the, what I mean? Or the guest. <laughs> yeah, or the well, the guest is different. The guest is just the guest is a not just doesn't deliver, in my opinion. Like I think the guest that is not a bad approach to make a movie. I just think it is just way too shoddy. <laughs> in a w- weird way, the guest sort of, in my mind, is akin to how I felt with House of the Devil. Like, oh, this is a movie I kind of grew up watching on yeah. VHS. Yeah. So therefore, I, 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 I like think, it. I think a lot of people who really like the guest. 
they are responding to things that it is doing that I can't pick up on because I don't have a lot of time sitting in basements in the 80s watching action movies yeah. on videotape. Like, like there, I think people who really like The Guest are people who are so into that genre and the and the B-movies of that genre, not just the big... Right. That Yet I didn't like Hobo with a Shotgun because, to me, it felt like winking and self-awareness. Oh, I loved Hobo. I thought, I, Hobo with, I thought Hobo with a Shotgun was just I like... I should love it. I don't know why I just I don't. thought it was like a good trauma movie. Like, okay. I was good in the way that a good trauma movie is right. good. Um, it, it is winking, and but, you know, so is Poultrygeist. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, Itamama Tembien, uh, really, really intense emotional experience. Probably, I mean, I saw that in high school, and that was probably my favorite movie for... A period of time just because it was such an intense emotional experience and uh, I mean my favorite movie going into high school and for most of high school was Annie Hall but that's not a movie that's necessarily about a thing I could relate to having never had a girlfriend at all <laughs> like yeah. Annie Hall I liked for cinematic reasons whereas like Ichimo Tempien was probably the movie in high school I saw that I was just intensely understood those characters sure. and then the way those characters grew made me realize something about myself I didn't realize. And, like, it's actually a thing that I don't get a lot out of movies anymore just because I'm so in tune with this is what the movie's doing, this is how it's working, it's doing this thing now. Like, even indie movies, like, they tend to have a certain formula or Mm -hmm. certain approaches that I rarely feel walk out of a movie feeling like I learned something about myself. Duke of Burgundy, though, that was a movie I feel like I walked out of it and then I related to it on a certain level. And then once it went further, I was like, oh, I understand myself better seeing it. And that was something I definitely I associate with E2 Mama Tembien. That's how I feel about some movies coming up for sure. Yeah, yeah. I can. I mean, especially for you, I can imagine a lot of your favorite films were that kind of experience. Number 17. For you. And I also, I go back and forth because this is a, a pair of brothers that... <laughs> um, I could 17 be, Dead Presidents by the Hughes Brothers. No, close. It's Barton Fink. Ooh. And I don't know, because like I, I also rewatched Blood Simple recently. I'm like, God, this is just like how you feel about Blue Ruin. Almost like with Blood Simple, I kind of go, this is exactly the kind of simple, mm-hmm. clean-cut genre, you know, noir sort of action drama thriller thing that just works yeah. in every way possible. It's tight. I yeah. hate using that terminology, but I still do. Um, but Barton Fink, oh, it just kills me in some otherworldly way. Like I wonder what it says about I don't me. Know why. I wonder what it says about me that the Coen Brothers are are my favorite, are not my favorite directors, but they're among my favorite directors. But yet, none of their films were the favorites of their decades, or at least when I thought of like when I was trying to think of eighties films I loved. Wait, is, I can't remember. Is Barton Fink eighty nine or ninety one? Okay. So when I was trying to think of like '90s films I loved, Barton Fink didn't come up. Um, when I was trying to think of '80s films I loved, Blood Simple didn't come up. Those are such amazing movies. Again, no country the way for I'm old men. List. Is that on your list? It, it it had it had to go. I had too many. I had too mm. many from that decade. Yeah, I love No Country for Old Men though. It was on that list for a long that's time. That's another one that's a grower. That's one that's more I've watched that I love. But Barton Fink, I don't know, man. Barton Fink. It is says incredible. a lot about getting too lost in your own head. Um, isolation, mm-hmm. the uh, writer's experience in a way that's similar to adaptation, um, but this one's obviously more surreal. Uh, and John Goodman's best performance by far. Um, yeah, 
I mean, it sneaks up on you though. How yeah, real it, it is. It does for sure, because it seems to play in reality for the most part. Mm-hmm. And yet that hotel is just so. It's yeah, a, it's this whole and other, little touches. Yeah, because like I mean, there are things, especially like uh, nepotism and uh, John Turturro's narcissism and believing he's writing for the common man, when actually he looks down on John Goodman's character. Yeah. That's that hypocrisy is really interesting to me in this character, um, and then obviously where it goes in this insane, surreal manner, and what the you know what it mean what the ending means ultimately is just that it's that ambiguity that like kind of the Coen brothers have been known for with these endings lately, but that one to me actually resonates with me the most, even emotionally. Mm-hmm. Like as much as I like a lot of the Coen brothers' latter films. Like I, kn- I know that you're not as crazy about a serious man, but yeah. I kind of am. And yeah. inside Lewin Davis, I, j- I mean, this one to me, I keep coming back to in my mind for reasons I think kind of obvious. <laughs> right. Like it's a brilliant film. I mean, there are people who will say like, "Oh no, Miller's Crossing is their best film," or "No, yeah. uh, Big Lebowski." But no, Barton I mean, Fink for me is my personal favorite. There is a, I mean, most of their films sort of you can when you watch them you go oh. These are two people who adore classic Hollywood. These are two people who adore pre-60s Hollywood films. Yeah. You can even sense that in something like Intolerable Cruelty. You know, yeah, like, like every, every, like most of their movies, even whether they're something super obvious like Hudsucker Proxy or something less obvious like Blood Simple, like they are, they are just so informed by classic Hollywood cinema. Yeah. And then Barton Fink is the one that... It's not a movie that would ever get made in that period, but it also it shows an understanding of that period just for taking place there. Yeah. Um, you know, so like you know, people who are more fan who are more inclined towards genre films. I mean, God knows there are so many fucking horror movies on my top fifty list. So I understand people really, really being into Miller's Crossing, really, really being into. I do now, thankfully. Yeah. Took me a while to warm up to that one. Yeah, it's still not one of my favorite films by them, but uh, it's it's very good. But like, yeah, Barton Fink is just something else, and it's it's this whole other thing. <laughs> it's this whole other thing. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it, I love it. Mm-hmm. And I don't. Have, I guess like, yeah, the Coen Brothers with the Serious Man and Inside Lewin Davis. There are hints of Barton Fink in both of those movies, but Barton Fink is the best. Yeah, they never did really go full. There is no moment in their filmography quite like that uh, I'll show you the life of the mind scene, is there? Right. I don't think so. Yeah. No. They never went there again. <laughs> like, it's interesting. Like, A Serious Man has bits and pieces that are kind of feel like they're going in that direction. I think the Coen brothers were actually going mad when, when they wrote this movie. Because, like, wasn't it... They didn't know what to do with Miller's Crossing. Like, yeah. They were struggling. It, so it they was wrote... a thing they wrote during writer's block. Yeah. Um, I get that sense from this movie that they were going through something. And yet something. it's not like that story sort of implies that it's this piecemeal sort of slapdash, like just a collection of their peak of their interests and stuff. Yeah. When actually there are other films by the Coen brothers that do feel like that. Like when I, I mean, I think inside Lou and Davis is a really, really great movie, mm-hmm. but it also feels like them just sort of revisiting a lot of things they've done. Um, it feels very but doing much, it well. It, yeah, no, the, they do it very well. But like, if if you if they told if you told me that like Inside Lou and Davis was something they just sort of cranked out, like oh yeah, we wrote that super fast. Like I'd believe it because it feels like whereas like Barton Fink just feels so 
complete. Yes. Uh, even even the parts that don't you can't work out in your brain what they mean, quote mm-hmm. unquote. Like, uh, they, it, it's very complete. It's a really good movie. Oh yeah. Um, what number are we on? Number seventeen. Mm-hmm. Scream is my number seventeen movie. Uh, yeah, it's another not one movie of the greatest... that had a big cultural impact. Yeah, it's not of... one of the greatest films of all time, um, but it is a movie I can watch endlessly. Um, it's, I mean, all the things that people were raving about it when it came out are still true. Uh, it is, you know, it's very smart. It's very quick. It's well written. It's, uh, it is actually effective as a thriller. It's kind of nasty in a way that Wes Craven hadn't been in a while. Like that slow motion plunge into Drew Barrymore, that knife, like that, that moment is just kind of gross, like kind of just like violent and depraved in a way that you don't associate with Wes Craven post uh, Hills of Eyes. There's a, there's a level of, and you know, the scene in the kitchen where they're stabbing each other, there's such a nastiness to that, um, that is, that's really intense. Um, it's got, Kevin Williamson wrote a fucking amazing script. I think my absolute favorite thing about it is, and it's it's interesting because, you, I, so my favorite thing about it is the who done it angle. My favorite thing about it is that it is constantly playing a game. It is you not. Read it's some not, Agatha Christie sometimes. Yeah, it's not. Well, that's the thing. Like, it's not just about trying to be scary. It's about throwing all these red herrings at you. And honestly, it's not like all like there are some clues, um, but it's not as if the the viewer has a reasonable. A chance of guessing who the killers are, but um, but the game of trying to figure out who is doing it is so good, and that it's so much fun. Um, there's just yeah, there's just a lot of individual things I really like about it. But at the same time, when you think of horror whodunits, you think of Giallo, and those movies almost <laughs> never connect with me because those yeah. movies don't know they don't play the game. They're just sort of investigations. You know, yeah, and they have a lot of them have slow patches, yeah, and just yeah, like that. I mean, that's the other thing I should say is Scream. Like the '90s were a terrible period of time for horror, and a lot of people don't even like Scream or the movies that inspired. But there is something about the '90s that I connect to. Probably, I'm just going to go ahead and say most likely because of Clueless. Well, I love Clueless. Clueless should be on my list, but uh, then again, that's why it's all. That's why there's so many films not on my list because every time I saw one movie, I can think of two others that should also be on my list. Okay, so there's something about the '90s. Of course, I grew up there. Scream was the first R-rated horror movie I saw, like Mm. uncut on VHS. Um, There is so in some way that informed my idea of what a horror movie is. Now it's not my favorite horror movie of all time. It's not even my favorite horror movie of all time that Wes Craven was involved with. We'll be talking about another one later. Um, But it is. It did inform in certain way my taste in films to the point where I actually really like the slickness of '90s horror. Like when you watch something like The Faculty, another Kevin Williamson script. uh, Because the thing about '90s horror was. Once at the end of the '80s, slasher movies were kind of dead. Everything was just sequels, and then yeah. at the beginning of the '90s, Silence of the Lambs happened, and that won Best Picture. And then everything became Bone Collector. And- yes. So, it, so all of the, sort of the resources that studios were going to be putting towards horror sort of ended up. It almost the the genre almost. Uh, uh, what's the proper word? It was like a. Oh, what's the word? 
gentrified. The genre sure. was like gentrified, where suddenly like all of these kind of uh, the things that people liked about horror movies couldn't afford to be in horror movies anymore because Ashley Judd's in horror movies now. Mm, like yeah. now it's the hand that rocks the cradle. That is what a horror movie is, you know. Uh, now it's single white female, and so like there is something about that that sucks because the thing that's great about horror movies is they're independent. Like, mm-hmm. most great horror films are independent films made by directors with vision. They're not made by committee. Right. They break tab... You know, they they have taboos in them, and they, they break taboos, and they're transgressive in ways that studio films often can't afford to be. Um, so a lot of things that people like about horror movies weren't there in the 90s. But one thing that horror movies didn't really have for a while, or had very sparingly, that was all over the 90s, is that they were slick and they were well made and suddenly they looked good and they had real actors in them (laughs) and they had like good dialogue whereas like you watch a lot of horror movies from the 80s people will just be yelling things at each other that are like I guess that was a joke I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I remember I watched Waxwork and it was just like there were these characters saying all these things and then the line and then there would be a pause and then the scene would end so that was the only way I knew that it was supposed to be a joke but it's just kind of nonsense right or even like something like Night of the Creeps, it becomes so obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every or, character or it's is like named. the wackiest, yeah, yeah. crazy vert. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. So, and then, so like a lot of these movies are kind of just like in the '90s, they just became kind of well made and kind of slick and kind of. Uh, I mean, they tried too hard to be cool. There's a lot of things. I'm not saying '90s was a good period. But for I just horror. wonder if too, like there, there's got to be a subset of horror fans that almost equate it to like I remember people's reaction, the punk community hated Nirvana. Yeah. Because like, oh, this is too slick. Yeah. You know? And this is too well produced and blah, blah, blah. So I just wonder if... You said there's people who don't like Scream. So I'm assuming... No, there's there's a lot of people who they view Scream It's like, oh, it thinks it's so smart. It thinks it's so clever and it's really just as dumb and it's Mm -hmm. looking down and it's talking about all these 80s movies that we love in a kind of derogatory way like talking about them like, oh, yeah, there's formula, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I... I don't think Scream... I do think Scream thinks it's a little smarter than it actually is. There's a lot about Scream that's very dumb, especially involving character stuff. But there is something about Scream that is loving. And it's not loving in the same way that Cabin in the Woods is loving. So it's harder for horror fans to accept it. Yeah. But... I can see that. But you got Dewey. Yeah. That's all oh, you yeah, need. That's the other thing. <laughs> David Arquette is my favorite supporting character in any horror movie. David Arquette as Dewey is so great. I can see great. that. Yeah. Um, so, but so anyway, there is something in my taste that keeps bringing me back to I want to watch mid to late '90s to early 2000s horror movies, and there's something about that, yeah, that weird dimension Miramax era of horror where it was just like fucking I still know what you did last summer that is shitty, but it's also something I I find appealing about that stuff, and <laughs> so that is part of my just overall the tapestry of my taste in film and uh, Scream is the absolute best possible version of that. So I I, I felt like I had to acknowledge it. I've seen Scream like seven times now, yeah. And of course, my soul to take is higher on your list. (laughs) Well, my soul to take will be coming up soon, the other Wes Craven involved one. What's your number 16? Um, A movie we talked about on the very first episode of this podcast. It is Say Anything by Cameron Crowe. Still still my favorite Cameron Crowe movie, obviously. Um, John Cusack plays one of my all-time puts, favorite characters. What puts Say Anything so high on your list? What is it about Say I've Anything gone back that to no it. other film has? I've gone back to it a couple of times, and I like that John Cusack's character doesn't fit into any type of stereotype. He's just 
a guy. I mean, he's he's a nice guy, but he's also an asshole sometimes. He just feels like the most human version of that kind of knight in shining armor of sorts that's yeah. going to come in and woo somebody, and right. yet he's still quirky and I he, again finding a balance, and he does it so well in that movie. But it's also I'm still shocked at how much feeling I get out of the father-daughter relationship in this movie. I find it pretty devastating. And just like her sort of coming to terms and realizing that her father isn't this angel that she's, you know, thought of in her mind. That whole thing, you know, really, I don't know why. It just works. And I think a lot of it has to do with John Mahoney, too. He's fucking great in this movie. I just... His supporting performance in this, I'm incarcerated, Lloyd! Like, I just love everything about him in this movie, too. Um, it's just one of my all-time favorite love stories. And it shows, again, sort of like with all the real girls, the upside and downside of being in a relationship and not having it go the way you want. I mean, yeah, it has John Cusack standing in the rain and poor, poor Lloyd, but I don't care. Like, everything else about it is great. And we've talked about it on the first episode where... My first impressions of that song in your eyes being yeah. played have changed over time. So, so you actually don't agree? You actually agree with me now? Yeah. Okay. Oh, cl- yeah. Clearly, I I know the first couple of times I saw it when I was younger, I was like, oh, that's so sweet of him to do. Like, <laughs> oh man, he's actually sticking it to her. Yeah. He's yeah. like, you know, trying to fucking um, mess with her a little bit in that moment, and that kind of makes him a dick. Yeah. You know, and I like everybody thinks of that moment as this romantic gesture and it's not and that's kind of what I love about it like there's some subversive elements in this Cameron Crowe script that I think you know he never went back to yeah like he he rounded off those kind of harsher edges yeah like yeah watch Jerry Maguire and you know it's not the same universe at all what's the name of the uh, supporting actress in this that's so good Ioni Sky Ioni Sky yeah I'm glad you knew exactly what I was talking about when I gave the great clues of supporting actress. Well, other than Lily Taylor, I guess. I Lily Taylor is who I was talking about, actually. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Lily okay. Taylor is my, is my, never mind, Lily Taylor is my yeah. MVP of that movie. Absolutely. <laughs> I loved Lily Taylor in that. Me too. I, I just imagine, like, every, and this is true, every girl at that time that I knew in high school who saw Say Anything wanted to find a Lloyd Dobler. Yeah. And I can see why. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like, I feel like there, there is this love of high fidelity that I don't get, and I should, because it's like guys who sit around and talk pop, pop culture and make lists. Yeah. I, I think I think there's something about that movie that there's a disconnect with well, me. Uh, I, well, I'll say one. Have you read the book? Yeah. Okay. So that's the, one reason. That's one thing. The book is better. Yes. It's one of those unfortunate things where once you've read the book, you kind of realize, like, oh, this is kind of a Cliff Notes yeah. version. His arc isn't nearly as complete. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the female characters in High Fidelity are an afterthought. Like, even Lily Taylor's character is just like, I'm neurotic and crazy. You yeah. Know, and that's it. But in Say Anything, I think everybody, almost every supporting character in this, gets their moment. Yeah. And I love that about this. Like, I don't think Cameron Crowe will ever make a, a movie this good. Ever. Yeah, it's too bad. It is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, I, still- I like Say Anything a whole lot, and I can't say that about any other Craven Crow movie. Yep. That was the, the first moment where I think it was the well obviously it's the first episode of the podcast but it was where I was nervous yay like you thought I was gonna, gonna think what's Patrick gonna think because <laughs> I was because I was full of piss and vinegar especially back then and I didn't like Cameron Crowe at all and you knew that and I 
and I mean, I, in that episode, I do a fair amount of of you know crow bashing, of crow bashing, and stuff that you that you weren't on board with. But like, um, I was also pleasantly surprised that it wasn't just going to be that episode wasn't just going yeah. to be me fucking hating everything because. And although it's not as good, I think you will feel similarly towards some kind of wonderful. Yeah, I think you will. It's not nearly as good. Yeah, um, and smart and insightful, but. It's a John Hughes screenplay that doesn't grate on the nerves or has caricatures and stereotypes. Yeah. It's fully, you know, human people making mistakes and owning up to them that I really like. All right. My number 16 is the exact same film. No. What? It's very different film. It's Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors. Whoa! <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Um, Although it's clearly the best. It is. It is. Okay, so it's the best Nightmare on Elm Street movie. And again, at this point, I had to include it in the list because it is, I find myself coming to this movie again and again and again and again in terms of what do, what should happen with a horror sequel. There's only one other movie, one other horror sequel that Final ever did. Final Destination 2. Yeah, Final Destination 2 and part and mm. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 are the only two horror sequels that take the original concept, um, they sort of... They are realized that we can't capture that weird vibe that the first one had. So we're not going to bother. We're just going to take the concept of it and explode it out a million different directions. And Final Destination 2 does that really, really well. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, suddenly the dreams reflect who's dreaming. Suddenly the dreams are not just random nightmare imagery like lambs running through a school hall. Like Not that I don't like Nightmare on Elm Street 1, but it's just kind of Wes Craven picking and choosing random stuff. It also has a pretty weak ending. Oh yeah, well, as much yeah. as I the, love it. The ending it. of Nightmare on Elm Street Part One is terrible, but um, but like suddenly there are anxieties, and it's God. If you're gonna do a movie about teenagers, like these aren't really amazingly acted characters. These aren't great actors. These aren't super strong characters, but they're just quickly sketched enough that you understand who each of them are, and then that makes you care a little bit more when they are stalked, like the kid. Yeah. The the kid who you know who has a problem with cutting and he's a sculptor suddenly a, mar- a sculpted marionette comes and slits his wrists. That in, is in the, in the most, most disturbing. It is so nightmare. Gross. Oh, so like it just it just gives you just enough to ha- tell a really fun story. I think that is all about Frank Darabont's script. I think Frank Darabont did a similar thing in the '80s Blob movie as well. I keep meaning to bring this up, but I I, I want to take issue. With what you and Gabe said about Frank Darabont, you you both said you don't like his movies, his directed films. So you don't like Shawshank Redemption? That's all right. It's, Shawshank, <laughs> it's all right. Shawshank Redemption is a big blubbery fucking chick flick. What? It is. It's beaches for dudes. <laughs> That's all it is. Shawshank Redemption's fine. It's not a bad movie. It's certainly better than Green Mile. Like, Green Mile is a good movie to be like, oh, okay, that's what Shawshank Redemption could have been if it was a little less interesting. Yeah. Um, the uh, Mist is good. Yeah, The Mist is really good. Yeah. But uh, in general, his work doesn't do a lot for me. Mm. Sha- I, yeah, I'm not a Shawshank Redemption guy. Interesting. It, is Shawshank Redemption, like, a, a favorite of yours? Not, like, of all time. I don't even know if it'd be in my top 100, but it's just, like, the most beloved movie well, yeah, but I know, mean, I know a lot of movies are the most beloved movies. I know, but it's. It, I mean, that is kind of the things I don't like about Shawshank Redemption is the fact that it is so like it is just positioned to. It's very broad. 
you know. Yeah, 94 is interesting when you have Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, and Shawshank Redemption. Because, like, all those movies, well, Forrest Gump, not so much anymore. But, like, yeah, they just, reputation with thought. Because yeah. nobody liked Shawshank Redemption when it came out. And then really? all of a sudden, no. It didn't, I mean, it might have been nominated, I think. For best picture, I think, I think Shawshank Redemption's always been. Po- I think. Uh-uh. I think. I think. Shaw- I mean. I think Shawshank. It wasn't Redemption- a big box office hit at all. No. No. I think its reputation has definitely been bolstered by it playing endlessly on cable. Yeah. Um, and it is the kind of episodic thing, like Goodfellas, that you can just—it's a good cable movie. You can just—you don't have to see the beginning. You can just dip in twenty minutes. You can dip out. Like. Mm-hmm. But I just even the schmaltzier moments work for me, like when Tim Robbins plays an opera and all the prisoners are looking up at the speakers. I'm like, yeah. why does this work for me? I don't know, but it does. I mean, that's I fair. Know. That's fair enough. It works and for you. And when he crawls it, through the shit. Yeah. It doesn't work for me. It just Ooh. feels like a chick flick for dudes. Yeah. Well, and which isn't a terrible thing. I think I'm, I'm glad that there are fucking straight men who know how to get their emotions out somehow, even if it has to be a fucking movie with Field prison. Dreams. You would have to be a movie with prison rape in it. Like fine. At least you can <laughs> get your emotions out somehow. Uh, you know, I feel bad about he- I feel bad for heterosexual men sometimes in that regard. And I also don't hate the majestic. Yeah. It's not great. It's a I, Frank- I saw that in theaters as a as a kid. It's when a it Frank Capra movie. I thought it was all right, but you know. Anyway, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three. Oh yeah, forgot. Is just that's what I want out of an East horror movie. I want really fun special effects. I want cool makeup. I want it to move like Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three really great fucking pacing. moves. Great pacing. It's- I like all the characters in it, even the dumb ones. I like it has the cheesy moments, and but they're just nightly, nicely dipped in. I like fucking uh, Freddy Krueger with the hypodermic needle fingers. I mean, those are that's my favorite horror film series, and it's my favorite one of that series. And it's just a Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three is just like when I think about It Follows, like okay, someone's gonna do a sequel to It Follows. What should they do? Well, they're probably not going to be able to capture the magic that follows, so they probably should do the Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three thing. They should mm-hmm. probably just like I come up if with that like will work. yeah, like well, well, let's like really explore this concept. What constitutes sex? What if it's just oral sex? What if it? Why is it only heterosexual sex? What if it's two men or two women? Like what yeah. if what if we had all of our characters do an orgy just so that they all could see the thing? Like you could <laughs> you could do like all sorts of fun things with the rules of that universe. And there are people who are complaining about. Inconsistencies with the rules and the and like the the choice to have the pool uh, confrontation. Like there are people complaining about these little details. Yeah, well, I mean, no, that, it follows isn't an airtight thing. No, but it's it a it's a so well. It's a surreal movie. Yeah, that's the thing. Like Nightmare on Elm Street Part One. Well, why does she decide that she can bring him into the real world? Uh, like, why does she decide all these things will help? Uh, I don't know. What happens with her mom sinking in the bed in the end? I don't know. Well, what's that ending? I don't know. Yeah, like, Nightmare on Elm Street 1 is... And then Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 is like, all right, well, we're going to lose some of the tone. We're going to lose, like, the really cool creepiness of the body bag being dragged through the school hallway. Mm-hmm. But we're going to lock down those fucking rules, and we're going to explode them in a million directions, and we're going to put lucid dreaming in here, and all sorts of cool stuff. And it's just a really, really fun horror movie. It's the thing... Every time I watch, like, an 80s horror movie I haven't seen part like you know a movie of of that kind of uh tone i'm always in the back of my head i'm like all right how close is this going to be to dream warriors because this is the best uh, you've raised the bar high yeah no i'm not saying it always makes it but like the Mm. things i tend to like about those movies tend to be the things they have in common with dream warriors you know what i think i want to change last starfighter to the gate the gate i think 
Because everything you're describing with Dream... I mean, it's not a great horror movie. It's not yeah. scary as much as there's no, um, you know, moment with the wrists uh, hanging out. There's nothing, like, terrifying about it. But it definitely um, is a quality 80s horror movie with great special effects that also tap into adolescence. Um, not in the same way as, like, It Follows does at all, but there's just something innocent about it but also creepy cool that well, i think that i think you would appreciate that way more than a star wars ripoff oh my god i have three horror movies in a row well that was my number 16 i guess you're gonna have to wait to find out what number 15 is what's your number 15 the killing of a chinese bookie yeah yeah that's I should which should be on. higher but at this 15 is pretty high yeah yeah um i love it is that, that's my is favorite this your fa- is yeah. this your favorite movie that you've discovered via this podcast or are there other ones because the other thing about your list is a lot of the films mm. you are films that you saw when they came out, as opposed to films that you've discovered recently. Yeah, that probably is true. Is this the favorite one that you've discovered via the podcast? Yeah. Well, I mean, we didn't do an episode on Shane Carruth, so. But I mean, still, we yeah. both watched that movie. Right. But Killing of Chinese Pokey has some weird choices. Um, some things that just again like are both surreal and yet grounded in reality and has one of the best acting performances i've ever seen like the moment in the phone booth the moment of him talking to everybody backstage like things that i just could not believe how effective it was and yet it's still like a um you know hitman kind of a genre movie at the same yeah, time but it's film. also yeah it's a crime film that subverts your expectations at every turn practically because even the way the hit is done is kind of unorthodox um it's a really unconventional movie that surprised the hell out of me as because like most of john cassavetti's movies i was like i know i kind of know what i'm in for i kind of know like it's going to be really intense and dramatic this one snuck up on me in every way. Like at every turn, I was like, "My God, I wasn't expecting this and this and this," and yet have it be emotionally cohesive at the same time. So, it's one of the best examples of kind of a genre movie turning itself into something more and surprising me in every way, and having one of the best central performances you can ask for from an actor. So. Um, I love everything about this movie and I would expect like a woman under the influence in terms of my taste and like, Oh, I love, you know, movies about psychologically fragile people like that movie should be higher, but just because of the surprise factor mm-hmm. and how, um, invested I was in what was taking place. Uh, killing a Chinese bookie number 15. It's, it is it's a, the surprise. I mean, I agree with everything you said and especially the surprise factor because the, it is a great crime movie, but everything about it that is great is in ways that you don't expect crime movies to be great. Everything about it is just about really small emotional moments and about just the sort of sadness and about these characters and about even yeah. the surreal nature of it, but like the lightly kind of subtly surreal nature of it. And it's, but then you think, okay, so it's just a character piece, but then there's like really tense scenes that are like essentially action scenes yeah. and there's 
and there's other characters that you don't even see, but they have like powerful moments in it that you only see briefly. Like it constantly surprises you. Oh god, yeah. Yeah. That's a real I mean, that's something more than anything else in the event of, in the course of doing this podcast, I have come to val- value really being surprised. Um, mm-hmm. These are these most of my top twenty films are films that made me think about films differently because they I didn't realize I could be affected in that way. Uh, yeah, that's a good example of that. Yeah, um, I really should be on my list, but unfortunately, it isn't. Uh, my number fifteen is Cat People, another horror film. Oh, Val Luton. Val uh, Val Luton produced, written, uh, directed by Jacques Tourneur. It is. It is the first I th- I think it is the first adult horror movie. Mm. I think it is the first horror movie that you could say the way that it follows as a horror movie the way Martha Marcy May Marlene is a horror movie where When did Freaks come out? Well, Freaks is I'm so the way it's adult is that it's about adults and about the complicated ways that adults behave towards each other. It is oh, essentially okay. a melodrama that explodes into horror. Yeah. Whereas Freaks is not adult. It's adult that it's explicit and shocking, but it's the simplistic. It's mm-hmm. a very simplistic movie. Whereas, like, Cat People is so sophisticated. If there was no cat people in this movie, if there was no sh- scary scenes in this movie, you would still be so invested in these characters. Um, it's just really good melodrama. It's just a really strong love triangle b- between three people who want to help each other but are in each other's ways and like you know the way that a lot of great you know melodramas are like Daisy Kenyon stuff but then it has that additional element of being a really effective really unbelievably beautifully shot yeah I mean I got to see this on the big screen last year at the Music Box of Horrors and it is it is so gorgeous Um, everything about this movie is incredible but I think it is the first adult horror movie where like oh this isn't just a monster movie for children you know, and some of those monster movies for children are great. Like Frankenstein is fucking great. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, there just weren't any movies like this before, and that's kind of what Val Luton did. Like I, I walked with the zombie isn't quite as good, but it's a very similar thing where it's about this, uh, you know, this, it's it's basically Jane Eyre <laughs> uh, in the West Indies is the way it's been described, yeah. and it's true, and it's and it is basically just this complicated sort of sophisticated story that also happens to have voodoo and black magic right. and stuff, right? Um, and, but I don't think he ever. I don't think uh, RKO ever topped Cat People. Um, I do love Isle of the Dead. I do love. Uh, I do like Bedlam quite a bit. There's some other really good ones, but Cat People is uh, just a phenomenal movie, and it's dreamy, and it's and it's beautiful, and it's effective, and it's suggestive, and it is just. It's also one of the most influential movies. It's in terms of. The idea, I mean, it's it's a cliche at this point, and honestly, it's a cliche that's not always true, but the cliche is what you don't see is scarier than what you do see, and that's honestly not true. There are a lot of films that try to suggest things that aren't as good as if they just showed it, you know? Like, uh, uh, Pulse, if you don't see the ghost, uh, actually, this go- the scenes where you see the ghost in Pulse are fucking creepy as hell, uh-huh. you know? Like, there's a, there's a lot of scary movies that prove that... Uh, adage to not always be correct but cat people is the greatest example of just suggestions and shadows and really oh yeah subtle things that end up being really freaky and eerie and is that the movie where someone's being stalked and trying to uh catch a bus 
Yes. She's walking and yeah. Yeah, so it's all that, with sound and that's the, it also oh. has the scene with the pool. Yeah. And then it also That's so good. And then it also is just about adult things that even a melodrama in the 40s you wouldn't necessarily expect them to tackle. Like it is about sexual repression. Like that is that's the text. It's not even subtext. It is about someone who cannot allow themselves to have sex with their husband um, because they're afraid they will turn into a jungle cat and destroy Mm -hmm. them. And it's like, it's a really, really, really interesting and amazing movie. Um, And then somehow I forgot to put it on my top ten list of horror movies for me and Gabe's horror movie show episode. So it's still available (laughs) for when we do our, our next one, if we ever do that, like... Ugh, cat people is really good. What's another, your number? There's another thing I realized about Henry Portrait of Serial Killer is it's about sexual repression too. Yeah, there's like like almost every instance of violence is uh, predicated upon somebody not getting sexually released yeah. in some way. Yeah, it's more subtext there. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, What's your number fourteen? Lost in America, my great. favorite Albert Brooks movie. Great, great. And I don't know why I initially said it's about the American dream. <laughs> it's not really a movie about the American dream. It's just um, building something up in your mind and realizing that reality is going to interfere. That yeah. like you have this vision of your life as going one way and something fucks it up or money fucks it up or, or the lack of money fucks it up. And... Um, Again, full of some of the funniest scenes I've ever seen, but also in a very subtle way. And it sort of encapsulates everything I love about Albert Brooks. Mm-hmm. And it's like his pinnacle. As much as I like um, modern romance, it still has like the editing stuff that kind of doesn't belong, but I still like it. Lost in America, everything belongs in, in, to me. And it's the ending is still really interesting. In like I think... I don't know if he's ever gone on record as saying, like, well, we just sort of came up with that ending on the spot or whatever, or people felt like... Because that's something I've always felt about Albert Brooks' movies. Don't re- I actually don't remember the ending of Lost in America. He just goes back to New York and gets his job back. Yeah. You know, and it's like, oh, well, we better eat shit because we can't handle this life. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much what he comes down, what his conclusion is. And, you know, I, I just love the idea of almost like a comedic version of Into the Wild. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody thinking, I can drop out of society and live the life that I want to and have the freedom that I've always wanted. And no, you can't. Because you need money. Because you need other people. Because... Because you're not strong enough. Right. Not everyone can do that. Exactly. And that's... And Albert Brooks confronts the reality people of people underestimating their inadequacies. <laughs> like, good, good summation. That's all, yeah, exactly. At every turn. Just... Mm-hmm. You think... And you think you're good enough to be in Vegas and not gamble too much. No, you're you're human. You're, yep. You get it, You get sucked in like anyone else. And then you think you can talk your way out of it. <laughs> you think you're the exception. Yeah. Um, oh, God. Yeah, it's... It's a classic. It's really good. Mm-hmm. My number 14 is Rear Window. <gasps> um... It's just a really, really, really good Hitchcockian thriller, but then it also has, uh, you know, it's also got that meta-narrative of just the idea of voyeurism and the idea of the act of film, the viewing a film as voyeurism. I mean, I saw this... That might be one of the best examples. What's that? Of uh, voyeurism. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's, I mean, 
this is before there were tons of channels on TV, but when he's sitting on his back porch, he's essentially changing... I, I, I don't know even know. This might even be pre-TV, so I can't say it's... Because this came out like 1950. You might be right. So it might be pre-television, but... So, but what he's essentially doing is just changing channels when he's going from one room to the next room to the next room. And they actually... The way Hitchcock does it is very slyly like they're kind of vignettes the way like old Nickelodeons and like old silent films like I like uh, Edison era silent films are <laughs> where they're just like little weird things set to the piano music of the one neighbor who plays the piano and and obviously there's a sexual leering element to it and there's a there's a great shot where like Grace Kelly's breast is framed by uh, like she they're having a serious conversation but is she near a window and then her breast is framed by the window of the apartment across the hallway where the girl is dancing and it's like like, oh these are the same thing you are staring at the same they're staring at both for the same reasons interesting Um, there's like I I remember catching that the last time I saw it and be like oh that's fucking great I would like to see Wes Anderson's remake of Rear Window why is that I don't know just because of like you mentioned the panning of the like how he creates these little insulated dollhouse kind of worlds I, like, I don't know if Wes Anderson <laughs> could handle a movie. I don't know if modern Wes Anderson could handle yeah. a movie with so Suspense. little forward momentum. Well, okay, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, his movies now are just so propulsive. Yeah, this is a movie where Hitchcock lets his scenes breathe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was Hitchcock was really good at yeah, it. Yeah, Was of building tension and stuff in that way. And then, there, of course, there's the ending where, like, they they almost... They they're so disconnected when the girl's committing suicide. They almost don't care. Like it, it's sort of they have to bring themselves to actually call the police because they're so warped up in their own little storyline. Yeah. The only thing I don't like about Rear Window is the ending with the flash photography is kind of weak. Where it's just like stop. Oh, he takes off his glasses. He blinks and then he puts on his glasses and then he comes forward to get like it's really not exciting. That yeah. that part hasn't aged well. And I think I think Rear Window. If, if the if the neighbor didn't end up being a killer, would be more interesting. But I think that might be a dumb thing to say. Uh, I kind of agree. Because to me, it's so much about everyone getting wrapped up in his obsessions that if it ended up being something like Bug, where you never actually find out. Oh yeah. Remember that Friedkin, William Friedkin movie Bug, where you never find out actually if anything that Michael Shannon is saying is true. It's just sort of about this contagious uh, paranoia. Yeah, Take Shelter should have been on my list. Damn it. Yeah. Oh. Um, no, that's a good point. But I love... I, Rear Window's my favorite Hitchcock movie. I also feel that way about The Burbs. Yeah. Like, I think I, that was the... so long since I've seen it. I saw The Birds in seventh grade. Yeah. When I took a Hitchcock class Actually, in school. Actually, I, I said The Burbs. Oh. Oh. Because <laughs> the ending, it's yeah. like... I think the original ending was they weren't, you know, serial yeah. killers or whatever. They weren't mass murderers. <laughs> I maybe I need to watch the Burbs again too because I didn't like that. But well, it's Joe Dante's Hitchcock movie, kind of. Yeah. In the, the only way Joe Dante can do it with Looney Tunes characters around surrounding him, I don't know. I think that movie's underappreciated. But I'm excited that Joe Dante's gonna have a new movie coming out. It's a horror comedy. So. I didn't see his last movie, so yeah, it was all right. Number f- thirteen. Thirteen is Brief Encounter. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I was. Struggling because I realized as much as I love all of Richard Linkletter's movies, including the Before Trilogy, I'm like, why don't I have one of those movies on here? I don't know. It, sh- it should be, because I love them. Mm-hmm. But I think Brief Encounter um, does beautifully 
what uh, the Before trilogy did, or yeah. at least one of them. Well, it, it, in a very different way, but yeah, 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 it's it's heartbreaking, and uh, another experience of empathy in a way that's kind of unexpected. And there's just moments of looking at her face, whether you know if it's her sort of hiding what's going on to her husband but, but like she's sitting in front of the fireplace and he's just doing a crossword puzzle and she's like hi i'd like to have a guest over for dinner and you know like he's sort of like kind of oblivious to the whole thing yet if you look closely at her face she's having very different reactions to what you know essentially is like i I'm, i want to bring over this hot doctor yeah. that i really like um and just the the it's not even like a meet cute, but just like their scenes of hanging out together early on, like them having lunch together, just feels so real. It doesn't feel like staged and stylized. It's it's just a real movie, and yet it has this gorgeous score. Um, it's like kind of like my Casablanca and my Gone with the Wind. My I don't know, like just that classic. I think movie. Casablanca is very different, though. It is. But I just because that's just like a movie very mainstream that, entertainment, whereas this is just like heartbreaking. Whereas that movie's yeah. fun and swashbuckling almost. That's true. No, that's not true. swashbuckling, but you know, like it's it feels more like more of an adventure. It's one of the best movies about doomed love. Yeah. that I've ever seen. Yeah, and it's just gorgeous. Well, I guess I no, like. you you are absolutely true. That's also the the ending of Casablanca, but it's just like, yeah. No, it's it's different, but it's it's also one of the you know. Fewer movies from that era that's also really short and also just really concise and simple. And again, like if you're not willing to sit with a movie that doesn't have a lot of action or intrigue or, you know, mm-hmm. dramatic moments, it's just more about two people realizing slowly that they're in love and that there's nothing they can do about it to make it, you know, actually happen to where they can actually be together. Yeah. And I love that. That's one of my favorite themes in a movie. So mm-hmm. it's almost like, what's that um, Terrence Davies or Davis? What the 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 Deep Blue Sea? Deep Blue Sea. Okay, yes. No, yeah. I should have thought about that. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, Deep Blue Sea is very much a brief encounter. Yes. Kind of a film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's inspired by that sort of era. I I have the Noel Coward, uh, uh, David Lean uh, Criterion Blu-ray box set so I'm really excited to see some of the other films I saw one but it was like a stage comedy and it's not very good at all that's weird it's called Blythe Spirit it's like a supernatural ghost comedy directed by David Lean <laughs> it's, he, it's like he does his not, high spirits he does not have the light touch required uh, my number tw- 13 is Footlight Parade which I don't think you've seen. No. It's a Busby Berkeley movie. It's the greatest Busby Berkeley movie. It is... So it has some of the greatest Busby Berkeley musical numbers in it. I can add that to my list. It's so delirious. It is like... If you haven't seen Busby Berkeley, especially like this era, like early movies where they were sort of still trying to slip things by the the Hayes Code, um, or, you know, I think... uh, I think Goldigger's 1933 is like technically pre-code. Um, they're they are just they are just phantasmagoria of hallucinatory sexuality, where it's like really, Ooh. it is it is just <laughs> like if you if you want to talk about objectification, you can talk about like Russ Meyer films and stuff, you know, where he's just all these uh, you know leering close-ups of breasts and cleavage and stuff, but. Like, you can watch uh, Busby Berkeley. Liter- Fast and Furious. Yeah, sure. Busby Berkeley literally 
objectifies women in that he just has piles and piles of scantily clad women designed in different shapes and arrangements. And they're just like, it is just, it, 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 sometimes watching Busby Berkeley musical numbers is you feel like there is some like mad emperor, like some fucking Caligula character who has just like demanded that naked women be arranged in the most, (laughs) in the most insane ways. Um, it's it, like an OCD pervert. Yeah, well, oh an OCD, but also just like opulence beyond imagine. Because these are movies that were just speaking directly to the Great Depression, where it was just like, all right, no one has anything, so as a result, let's have the most crazy, over-the-top sequences ever. And even if you can't, you know, even if you don't watch these films, like if you just see these sequences, um, you know, in their entirety, like Busby Berkeley's work has sort of just been absorbed into the language of cinema to the point where, you know, an, the opening of, yeah, the opening of a, of a Austin Powers movie, even something as mainstream as that can have like, a has the, uh, synchronized swimming aspect of a Busby Berkeley number and no one blinks at it. Cause they just know what it's going for. Mm-hmm. I mean, beauty and the beast had it like, like it, but is seeing it in real time is another thing entirely. And footlight parade I mean, they're all. A lot of his movies are just really good in that regard. They are old school musicals, and that the the stories are kind of just backstage comedies, um, and it's not very meaningful. <laughs> but uh, Footlight Parade is the one that has the best stuff in between the insane musical numbers, where it is just um, fuck James Cagney. It's just oh. James Cagney giving one of the most physical performances ever because he is this director of all of these different show numbers and he just runs from scene to scene being like no no and then he's like he like stops the choreographer he's like no it's like this and then he runs to a different place and he's like no no the writing should be like this no I know here's the new idea Egyptian themed we'll have an Egyptian themed number like sounds like a manic movie it is so manic and it is breathless the way it runs around and there's a romance that no one cares about but it's like but as far as the actual like most of these are just sort of romantic comedy musical numbers that where the or musicals where the numbers just happen to be the most crazy things you've ever seen and Footlight Parade is the best version of that. Uh, second best I would say is Gold Diggers 1933 but um, Footlight Parade is a movie that uh, I'm just super into I will see it. Yeah you should I will. Absolutely. I'm very curious It was it was a movie that I got the Busby Berkeley box set and I worked, I worked my way through the Gold Digger movies and then I finally saw Footlight Parade and then immediately I showed it to someone I was dating. I'm like, no, you need to see this now. And then I watched it another time, like a couple days later, just because I was doing something and I wanted something to sort of watch absentmindedly. And then seeing it three times over the course of a week, like just burned it into my brain. And I love Footlight. The only experience I've had with Busby Berkeley is a magnetic field song. That's really cute. Yeah, you should see Footlight Parade. What's your number 12? Number 12 couldn't be more different. Yeah. It's Todd Haynes' safe. Oh, yeah. That couldn't be more different. I mean, I guess technically, Hello. like Andy Warhol's uh, Empire State Building, like that. Yeah, <laughs> that is about it. The only way you can get more different. A lot of people I've shown this movie to have had interesting reactions where they don't quite know what to make of it. They admire it, but don't love it. Um, I connect with this movie in a very weird way that's hard to explain, other than like on a surface level of having weird health things happen to me and not have a clear explanation of what they could be. Yeah. And 
that happens in this movie. Right. Um, but it really is about a loss of identity in not necessarily the same way as Martha Marcy May Marlene, but this character has is going through some sort of existential crisis and can't articulate what it is, if it's physical, if it's mental. I mean, according to this new agey cult that she joins, it's an environmental disease that people get. Um, and you can look at that as a very sort of simplistic commentary on like, well, that's suburbia. You know, like the American beauty interpretation of like, well, she's suffocated by her suburban environment or whatever, and that's why she's sick. But I like the movie a lot because it doesn't explicitly tell you what it is about, I guess. Like, I mean, you can, it's one of those movies too, you can have different interpretations, I guess. Yeah. And my, I have a really weird sort of emotional connection to this character. Um, sort of not, like, not necessarily, I went through this period of not knowing who I was or what I wanted, but it's also just a desire to connect, but not knowing how. And there's a scene where she's giving a speech to everybody that she thinks that she's connected to, but as she's giving the speech, she realizes that she's not. And that really fucks me up. Like, that moment, as much as, as sad as this ending is, where she's in her little bubble, in her little world, and she just looks in the mirror and sort of chants, like, this thing that she's learned through the cult. I still consider them a cult, but, you know, maybe yeah. they're, you know, a legitimate support group, but... Um, that that scene, and you know, I learned too from watching the Criterion Blu-ray that it was an accident because Julianne Moore had a rare case of forgetting her dialogue, so she stumbled a little bit through it, and Todd Haynes decided to keep that cut because it seemed to um, communicate what her character was <laughs> like going through, like this sense of disconnection despite thinking she's connected, and. Safe is just um, a hard movie to yeah. uh, really like champion in its like Kubrick kind of clinical coldness. Sure, but, but I mean, it sounds I, like you don't find it cold. You find it very intentionally, uh, intensely personal. Yeah, I do, and the same goes true to, for my number eleven. So, yeah. I uh, um, this is actually Safe is actually more than any other film that we've watched for the podcast. Um, safeism is the movie I think about and am very embarrassed by as far as like I hope no one listens to the Todd Haynes episode and listens to what I had to say about safe because I'm an idiot I think about that all the time about people <laughs> hearing that and then going oh this guy's an idiot because safe is a movie that I could not connect to and it's a movie that I it's the kind of movie that I tend to give the benefit of the doubt to but I don't think I was really giving it the benefit of the doubt yeah. at the time because I think you can still interpret it as another metaphor for depression. Yeah, I I really want to rewatch it, especially like yeah. a proper version. Because the version I saw was yeah. like a dubbed DVD, like a burned DVD. That your video store should get the Criterion. Yeah, movie. I I need to watch the Criterion one and really watch it properly. Yeah, and so watch the interviews too with Haynes and Moore. They're mm -hmm. really Haynes. Good. Haynes gives good interviews. Yeah, absolutely. There there was a Haynes introduction to the uh, Ali Fear Eats at yeah. the Soul. Uh, criterion that was really good. 
Um, my number 12 is Carnival of Souls, speaking of depression. Oh. We talked about that. I think there's also something to be said about Carnival of Souls and what it has. There's the guys out there smoking again. Damn it. Uh, boy. Okay. Still so there's something this. to say about, speaking of, uh, uh, of a creepy man who's staring through my window. But <laughs> 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 the neighbor who lives in the alley who constantly stares at my window while he chain smokes. Oh, God. Okay. There's nothing to be said about Carnival of Souls, and I talked about this on the um, Pop Culture Lens podcast. We did an episode on that, and I talked about this on that, but there's something to be said about the male gaze and about the way that everyone who tries to put the main character of Carnival of Souls in her place is a clergyman or a guy who's trying to fuck her or, like, a doctor, and they're all trying to tell her what she should be doing, and she feels completely out of place and displaced by the world, and I think... That there is a feminist interpretation of Carnival of Souls that is very valid. Same with Safe. Yeah. Because that happens to her a lot. Yeah. Her husband, a doctor, a support group guru. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, Carnival of Souls is just a really fun, spooky horror movie with a mm-hmm. great soundtrack and great expressionist photography. And yes. The, and the ending with all the dancing zombies oh. and them chasing her. Like, it's a beautiful movie as well. It's, it's fun on that level as well. Um, and there's definitely Carnival of Souls is a movie that has some bad moments of acting and it's it's a very cheap movie, so mm-hmm. there's things about it. There are flaws that I just have to overlook because I love everything else about it so much. So that was Carnival of Souls, my number 11. What's your yeah. number 10? We're I can't wait to watch that now. again for Halloween. That's something I'm going to start doing. What's like, that? I think I'm going to start watching Cat People and Carnival of Souls for sure every yeah. year around Halloween. Number 11, one of the most personal movies. Um, and I talked about it so much on the Peter Weir episode that I don't want to recount every single detail of why I love Fearless. But I do. And it's my favorite Jeff Bridges performance still to it's this day. Great, great film. Yeah. Um, and one of those endings that I was worried about. Like, because it could really be. And I, I'm sure there's people out there who think it's. Remind weird. me again how it ends. Because <laughs> I haven't seen it since we did the Peter Weir episode. Skip ahead yeah. if you need to. Skip ahead a couple of minutes if you haven't seen Fearless. Yes. Um, Skip ahead one minute. All right. Yeah. Tell me the ending real quick. Uh, Jeff Bridges has an allergic reaction to the strawberries okay. and almost dies. Okay, yeah, yeah, I remember that, yeah. And, whew, that whole moment, and again, it's got s- the score raising, um, slow motion, him almost dying, and it manages to move me beyond belief. Wait, because it's not, it's be, well, it's not like a typically, like a man having an allergic reaction to a food he ate is not... A tri- typically dramatic moment. It's what yeah. it implies about exactly. him. Exactly. It's not. So it's not like, oh, this is where Sean Penn sees that his daughter's been killed, and he's screaming, <laughs> "Is that my daughter?" And he's, <laughs> and he's struggling against the cops, and the, the music swells, and it goes into slow motion. Like it is. You can have big emotional moments, but if they approach from kind of a sideways angle, they don't come across as corny. Same with the U two song, which in a million years I never thought like. Yeah, I'm not, I'm I'm still not a big fan of that song, but it's a very small thing. It doesn't bother me too but much. But the fact that they use the instrumental part of that song at a very pivotal, intense moment of that movie is yeah. just like I don't know. What, everything works in this movie. Mm-hmm. I guess it was based off a book, and I still have yet to read it. And well, I it's should. it's not easy. Yeah, it's not. You would th- it's like it's not a movie like you know most of these movies I have watched a lot. Yeah. I probably watched Fearless like four or five times. <laughs> I mean, that's still yeah. a lot to some people, but 
I, can't, I don't like every year. I kind of go. I'm scared to go back because I know I'm going to feel. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's both life. Well, I mean, it's not easy to watch. But I was also saying it's not easy in that. Well, I, I guess they're the same thing. It doesn't let the viewer off the hook in terms yeah. of like the easy version of Fearless is he has a near death experience and then he learns to, and then he learns to appreciate his life and then he goes and changes the lives of everyone around him. And structurally, the the movie is kind of that, but it's actually saying some way more interesting things. And the actual sort of arc his character has is way better than just like, <laughs> like, like the shitty version of Fearless is he quits his job because he needs to spend more time with his kids. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like the I feel like there's a lot of movies that are very uh, uh, uplifting, like that w- that take near death experiences as hey guys. Spend more time with your kids. Oh my god! Especially, in the, especially in the '80s. Hey, dad, spend more time with your kids was like the the premise of every third movie. But mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas Fearless is actually like, no, you're you're having a manic episode. This is a problem, and like you, that doesn't mean that you still can't help other people or that other people can't help you. There's no one who's correct, and there's no right. one who's incorrect. You're just all having intense reactions to a insane experience. One of the best movies about post-traumatic stress disorder. Done. Yeah, we love. I I almost never think about it because I think about. Uh, I guess I think about more horror films when I think about PTSD. But you're absolutely right. This is it, this is as far as movies that are just explicitly textually about post-traumatic stress. Yeah, Fearless is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, my number eleven. Oh, did I do my number eleven? I don't think so. Okay, my number 11 is computer chess. <gasps> really? God, yeah. how many times have I made that noise? I almost want to censor myself and edit it, but I think it's just a genuine surprise. I think about computer chess still. Like, I, I, t- I talked about this when I first saw computer chess somewhere mid-2013. I, It still happens about once a week. I just think about computer chess, and it is... There should be a meetup group for people. Yeah, yeah, it is just the most strange, beguiling, interesting, compelling, hilarious, weird unexpectedly moving aesthetically jaw-dropping just fucking strange film I've ever seen um, I would agree there's nothing like computer chess no there isn't I don't think there is if there was I'd watch it and then I'd see the one little and it's like oh no it's not computer chess because to me like computer chess is a perfect like well is it found footage well kind of at parts I guess where it's like, oh, well, is it a comedy? Yeah, co- well, kind of at parts, I guess. <laughs> like, oh, is it a sci-fi movie? Um, there's that kind of. Well, is it a indie movie? Yes, it is an independent film. It was financially. No, I mean, like, is it a? Is it like a character study? Oh, I guess kind of. <laughs> oh, is it a surreal nightmare? Yes, I guess kind of. Like, I still want there to be a pull quote for me on a DVD of it just saying, "Enigma." <laughs> That's all I can think about when I saw that movie. Is like, this is an enigma. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but I love it. Uh, I think about computer chess constantly. I've sort of absorbed computer chess into who I am as a person. <laughs> like, no, it's true. Like, I just like the way I think about art now is differently because I realize that computer chess can happen, and now I want. And now one of the things I expect from movies is at least to attempt to be computer chess in some way which is which is a very weird way of stating that uh the thing that i've stated many times which is like i want to be surprised computer chess not only <laughs> computer just surprised me every five minutes yeah every five minutes there's something i'd never seen before in computer chess 
and uh, it's just and for it to be all those things and also really watchable and fun um, is amazing. So I love computer chess. We're at our top ten now. Oh I said my we were God. at our top ten before. We're at our top ten now. And you were right. We're at the three-hour mark. Yeah. I, I knew we would. <laughs> it's inevitable. What's your number ten? My number ten is my favorite Robert Altman movie, which is also kind of an enigma. Um, it's Three Women. Yeah. Which we talked about a lot. Yeah. And Three Women is very not similar to computer chess, <laughs> in other than the fact that it constantly is subverting your expectations. Yep. But but the thing about Three Women is it does it so like the way most Robert Altman movies are. It's so casual about it. It's just like mm-hmm. wait, what is okay? Wait, is what, what yeah. is going on? Yeah. But it doesn't. But it doesn't do it through like crazy camera tricks or mm-hmm. like or like night. I mean, there is a great nightmare sequence in this, but it's never. Oh God, it's yeah. not what you expect. It's um, another movie about identity crisis. Yeah. I mean, um, if you love Mulholland Drive, see Three Women. That is basically, uh, there are probably way, way, way more people who have seen Mulholland Drive than Three Women. Three Women also, though, funny. Like, it is yeah. an Altman movie. It is entertaining the way that Robert Altman movies are entertaining. Mm-hmm. It's not dry. <laughs> like, I, it can almost, when you talk about Three Women, you talk about how strange it is and how confusing it is and how cryptic it is and, and how dreamlike it is. And that can sort of make it sound like a more dull experience than it actually is. Whereas, really, Shelley Duvall's hilarious in it. And, um, you know, Sissy Spacek gives, like, a really funny kind of... Odd, like, if if Carrie was in a comedy, <laughs> then it would then she would, get, then she would be That's a character a, a lot like Sissy Spacek plays in Three Women. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are definitely interactions they have with the uh, elderly that are funny. And, oh my god. It's just another one of those movies where... It's hard to describe, mm-hmm. and it gets under your skin, and when it's over, you want to talk about it with other people, but how? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's just You know what we should do eventually? Uh, someday we should do a commentary track, because then you can actually talk about moment to moment. Yeah. That, that I feel would... like that's almost the only way to talk about three women. Cause yeah, Because when that. you try to rely on your memory of it, unless, I guess, maybe it would be different if we had seen it several times, because I've only seen it the twice. Yeah, same here. Okay, so like maybe if we've seen it a dozen times each, then it would just be more solid in our brain. But to me, it feels like trying to recount a really vivid dream I had once. That's exactly what it feels like. So that's why that's the struggle of like trying to explain it. But yeah, maybe we should do a commentary track sometime. It'd be fun. Yeah. What's your number ten? My number ten is Sunset Boulevard. I think this is the darkest Billy Wilder movie. Mm. It is a movie that should be on my list. I need to see it again. Yeah, it is. Every line of dialogue is hilarious. Um, William Holden is the lead. He's Correct. amazing in it. Uh, Gloria Swanson's amazing in it. Everyone's amazing in it. It's a beautiful movie. It's dark and it's funny and it's cynical. And it's, I mean, it's Sunset Boulevard. It's a classic Hollywood film and it is vicious and it gets its claws out. Um, it sharpens them. <laughs> They're really sharp, and it's who got the claws out? Yeah, yeah. There, thank you, Jim. Oh. <laughs> oh God, that's why you're quitting. Oh, I leave. <laughs> it's over. We will I never don't do this anymore. We will never know what your top nine are. Oh, it's Sunset. Okay, you have to just insert. It's Sunset Boulevard. Um, it's really good. It's 
a movie I can also it's also a movie I can just because it's so relying on dialogue yeah. it's a movie I can just listen to um, which I learned because I've, I've, I've put it on at work like two or three times and it's I every line of dialogue is like poetry it's or a joke it's either one or the other and it's great um, I really don't know if I have a lot to say about Sunset Boulevard other than the obvious things about fame and about um, the toxic relationship between Hollywood and and celebrities and people and what happens when you start buying into your own myth and stuff like that. Hmm. I It's kind of right there on the surface. It's a As far as satire goes, it's a pretty obvious one, but um, it's still amazing. Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, probably the best Hollywood satire, right? Yeah, I yeah. would say so. I think so, too. Hmm. I need to rewatch it. It's been a long time. Yeah. Number nine is the first of newer choices. I would say the top nine are pretty much a summation of me. Yeah. We've, we've gotten to that point. As much as like I want to include three women in that, mm-hmm. um, number nine is It's Such a Beautiful Day. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, like, I was... Uh, oh, yeah. As much as I wanted to put Tree of Life in my top 50, I haven't rewatched it in a long time. I haven't time. rewatched it since we saw it in theater. And it's one of those movies I'm like, maybe I won't like it as much. I'm scared, but I love it. I know I should put it on my list, but it's such a beautiful day. It is kind of almost similar to Tree of Life, but it doesn't have those bits at the end with Sean Penn and Heaven or whatever. Right. Exactly. It's just... Well, actually, it's very... It's like the most different from Tree of Life. Mm-hmm. Because it's because Tree of Life is all about these like naturalistic performances and melancholy memory and stuff and like it's such a beautiful day. It's stick figures. It's an animated film with stick figures. But I've never seen something that captures like losing your mind. Yeah, so well, and happens to be one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had. And yet mm-hmm. they're stick figures. Yeah, um, and stuff with sound and imagery and. Um, like this is also the movie that got me to see like Stan Brakhage in Outer Space. That, oh yeah, that short film because like there like, are there are a lot of like experimental techniques. Yeah, utilized like very jarring cuts and sound effects uh, mm-hmm. and things I'd never seen before in my life that have stuck with me and occasionally invade my dreams. <laughs> um, and um, I won't say as much about his latest film yet. Yeah. But um, I probably would be your ta- number one. No, 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 no. But um, I'm. I need to see it again on the big screen. You know, it's not the same. It's yeah. something I really want. I wish I could see this on the big screen too. But um, I know the Chicago Critics Film Festival is showing his latest, and I can't wait. Oh, so, cool! Um, but it's such a beautiful day. It's one of those movies that will hit you if you're at a very vulnerable time in your life, and will sort of um, speak to you if you've dealt with the whole existential crisis and depression and anxiety and questioning your own sanity. Yeah. Um, I think, I think especially if you have mood disorders mm-hmm. or you have uh, mental disorders like we do, <laughs> like, yeah, I think so. You can relate to it. It's also funny. It is very funny. It's, it's it got also weird has a very lines. strange sense of humor. I mean, as, the opening as does rejected and most of his other yeah, things. Like, no, like he's known for his sort of comedic, I mean, Rejected has a bit of the uh, experimental brackage kind of touches, and it's oh yeah, and it's very biting in the way that this is you know very dark. But like, there is the it 
it's such a beautiful day just definitely feels like a completely different beast it does um, but don't be scared away by saying oh it's an intense experience this doesn't mean it's a punishing experience no. it's actually quite funny and, um, and it's actually life affirming yeah I was gonna say I was about to say in some ways it's affirming also in some ways it uh it makes me want to kill myself but I know I went through every emotion possible mm-hmm. it's such a beautiful day is one of the most incredible films ever yes uh my number nine is Badlands. <sighs> Badlands was is what <laughs> I should have. I don't know. I it, occasionally there's movies where I'm like, yeah, I love that movie. I should put it on my list. Badlands is the uh, Terrence mm. Malick movie for people who don't like nature, which is to say, it's mostly about these two characters. Um, it's still one of the most beautiful films ever made, but you don't have to necessarily watch a uh, sun sunlight through tree leaves <laughs> through tree leaves you don't have to see like dappled sunlight through the leaves all the time and that kind of stuff there's <laughs> badlands is the best version of the bonnie and clyde story ever ever um yeah uh, martin sheen's best performance martin sheen gives one of the greatest performances in film history sissy spacek's best performance she gives an amazing performance every other shot is this jaw-dropping uh this, it's just like the way he he builds the frames are just incredible. It, it's just consistently one of the most beautiful looking movies ever made. It's a Bonnie and Clyde sort of a thing, but it's actually kind of surreal in that the premise of it I could eventually it I could basically say is a teenager and her older boyfriend going on a uh, crime spree, but the teenage girl is so disconnected from everything that she doesn't really register what's happening. So there is just this surreal element and she has narration and it's this very purple kind of poetic prose, um, you know, that is, it's almost like she, you know, she's narrating her life as if it's this storybook or something. Um, and it's, and it's this, but it, but at the same time, there's a specific nature to it that it is actually beautiful on its own way. I mean, probably just because it's married to some of those beautiful images. And also, there's just, yeah, strange moments. Um, there. Martin Sheen plays a sociopath in such an intriguing way, in a way that I don't think anyone's ever really played it since, in that. Yeah. Hmm. I think in the kind of murderous sociopath kind of characters you see in films, there's always at some point where it's. All right, now we're going to turn it. Well, no matter how much you've grown to like this person, no matter how much, now we're going to turn it, and this person's going to be scary, and we're going to scare the audience <laughs> because this because because the, the lack of their humanity is going to frighten the audience. And there's no moment like that in Badlands. Yeah, he is very consistent. Throughout. He is he is convinced that he's not. There's no problem with him, and there's no moment where he just becomes oh, I'm the devil speaking in the devil's voice. But like even like even in something like Nightcrawler, which I love. Like, there is moments where it's just, like, he's making a creepy, scary face, and he's screaming into the mirror, and, like, <laughs> like there's moments where you're, it's, like, trying to be, it, this is scary, right? And then it goes back to him just being unnerving in more interesting ways, whereas, like, Martin Sheen is so unnerving in this, be, precisely because he's never scary. He's not always externalizing his rage. No. 
he he like there's one part where he just takes his family hostage and he ties them up and then he goes and walks over to this like dictaphone and he starts like giving advice for teenagers like yeah. listen to your parents you might not always agree with the like like he just sees himself as this like hero this sort of uh you know it's it is someone who has you know who thinks of Robin Hood and John Dillinger and these sort of folk anti-heroes and thinks sincerely thinks he's one of them, but he's not really raging against anything. He's just a sociopath, um, and he keeps doing things that are just so strange that imply that his you know that he's off in his mind, but they're never strange in a spooky way, and they're never strange in a wacky way. They're just mm-hmm. they're just weird, and they're things that. I don't know. They're they're very relatable things in that not even if you haven't done them, you've probably dealt with people like or worked with people or whatever who will occasionally say things that just seem a little off and it's Martin Sheen's incredible. I mean everything about Badlands is incredible. The ending is incredible. Every Badlands is just a perfect movie and but Martin Sheen in it, it's something last time I saw it, I really I don't think I fully appreciated what an amazing performance he has. Um, Badlands is my number nine. What's your number eight? Damn it, I need to watch that again, too. Number eight is... um, Now, there's a new Criterion, which I haven't even seen. Oh, shit. Because the thing about Badlands is that for a while it was out of print. And I have the out of print. I have the out of print DVD, but it's terrible looking. It's a terrible transfer. It looks like garbage. So the fact that there's a Blu-ray Criterion of Badlands now, like, there's never been a better time to watch Badlands. There needs to be a Criterion Deathbed and Castle Freak. You're just reading my... You're just reading my DVDs now. There needs to be a Criterion Raising Cain. There needs to be a, a Criterion... Uh, Freddy versus Jason. Freddy versus Jason. Of, uh, there needs to be a Criterion uh, uh, Simpsons Season 6. <laughs> that would be pretty random. <laughs> that, would be, that would be insane. <laughs> just just Season 6. Yep. It's like, well, why? It's like, what's well, the best season? Well, it's debatable. And then Criterion's just like... No, it's not debatable. Or Criterion. <laughs> or Criterion. <laughs> Season 6. What's your number 8? The Apartment. Oh, that was your number 1. It was. I, I, I changed my mind sometimes. Yeah. I I have, I've noticed. only seen The Apartment once. I really should watch it again. Yeah, it's still my favorite Billy Wilder film. Mm-hmm. Quite possibly, well, it's definitely my top 5 screenplays. Jack Lemmon's character is one of the most instantly, oh my god, this is me kind of... <laughs> roles because of how not necessarily gullible he is, but a little naive, and he says yes to pretty much Mm -hmm. anybody, even if he knows they're kind of walking all over him and using him. Um, But he just wants to be a nice guy. He wants to, you know, want people to like him. Um, And yet he has, you know, a really crazy attraction to this girl who happens to really love somebody else, and goes through you know, her own crazy um, emotional cycle that he has to help her through. I'm like, hmm, I think I've done this a couple of times in my life. Um, but also, it's really um, a great love story when it comes down to it. It's just like seeing these two together, you want them to end up together. And, you know, you want her to wind up with the good guy. And at the end, I'm guessing that's what happens. But at the same time, She's still wrapped up in her own shit, and she tells him, deal with it, in a way, you know? Shirley MacLaine is such an underrated actress. 
Um, I, oh, some came running, right? Some came running is a similar role. Yeah. Um, I love Shirley MacLaine, especially in those two movies. But she, there's something about her. It, she she acted in Hollywood movies in an era when a woman who has a lot of sex was just a floozy who is getting used, and there's a dignity to her characters that you don't think of them as, oh, those poor deer. Like, you think of them as having some sort of agency. And unfortunately, just because, I mean, not necessarily unfortunately, because those are two really amazing movies, but, like, those are movies that, you know, definitely see her as a victim of some sorts. But They do. She brings so much to them that it's hard, it's hard for me to put into words, but there's something yeah. really noble about Shirley MacLaine's characters, even... Though they aren't the kind of noble female characters that were <laughs> were in films at the time, no, that's they true. weren't the kind of fil- characters that were considered noble. Jack Lemmon was always the noble one. Yeah, and yet there is, you can relate to you know both these characters in different instances. Yet they both screw up mm-hmm. big time. Um, you know, and I just I I think this is the ultimate camera the movie that Cameron Crowe wanted to make in his life yeah. and I think Say Anything comes close but not quite yeah. and I just love that it's a good romantic movie but it still um, captures flaws and the difficulties of maintaining a relationship when there's so much baggage and so much shit to deal with both within yourself and with the other person um, and the ending is not like you know the happiest yes we, we're gonna be together it's more of like Oh boy, I got a lot to deal with if I wind up with this person. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's and yet it's still sweet and simple, and it's just uh, I like you know all the series of different you know um, keys he goes through and the climbing up the corporate ladder angle of the movie too. I just everything about it works. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those movies that it's one of those classic movies too that I just fall in love with every time I watch it. Yeah, I gotta watch it again. I own it. I haven't. I haven't seen it in a long, long time. You better watch it again. <laughs> All right, let's go to number eight. Well, I, I'm just trying to figure out why you went. <laughs> but you blew a raspberry at me. There was one episode where I did so many times that it drove me nuts, and I'm like, I better not do that again. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you were able to hold that up. Uh, do the right thing is my number eight. Uh, it's, I've heard of it. It's do the right thing. Uh, I have really nothing to add <coughs> to it other than the fact that it's inc- it's still incredible to me. I still don't know what it is about Spike Lee that he can have characters that just explicitly talk about issues um, almost directly to the camera. Yeah, and and it's and it <coughs> doesn't great in the way it does mm-hmm. any other filmmaker tries to do it. I don't know what that is. I think part of it is because. He seems very sincere. Well, it's, I mean, a lot of people are very sincere and earnest, but it's embarrassing. I think the thing about Spike Lee is that his characters aren't right. He acknowledges that issues are complicated and there's no character who speaks, quote unquote, the truth. There are, when you have Buggin' Out and the guy in the Larry Bird jersey arguing two sides of the same thing, like, yeah, fucking gentrification is fucked up and it's really painful and it's, and to see just this white person come into your neighborhood and to know the prices are going to go up and it's going to fuck everything up, like, that's very, that that makes you very angry. But at the same time, that guy, like, that guy has the right to do that. And he's not in the wrong. And, you know, he didn't know what he was doing. And, like, 
both sides are sort of just in this tricky area that happens to be a result of the racial history of America. And mm-hmm. he'll have characters in Jungle Fever or whatever, like just all talking about interracial dating. Like it almost just <laughs> feels like the movie stops what it's doing to become the viewer or whatever, to have all these women talking about interracial. But like none of them are saying, quote unquote, this is what's like, there's a thing at the end of every South Park episode where it's like, I guess I learned something today. And then they give some libertarian message that, and it's just like, this is what Trey Parker and Matt Stone actually believe. Like, you know that. And that never feels like the case. I think it just feels Spike Lee movies. sincere and genuine coming out of those characters' mouths in that moment. Like, there's even a moment in 25th Hour where Barry Pepper and Philip Seymour Hoffman are arguing about the New York Times versus the New York Post. And I'm sure that's something Spike Lee genuinely feels himself. But in that moment, as they're looking out the window and seeing the towers and thinking yeah. about New York, it just fits. Yeah. And I think that happens in Do but the Right the Thing time, constantly. But at the same time, it's these <clears throat> heightened universes oh, where sure it's it not is. how people actually talk. Yeah. It isn't yeah. like a it isn't like a Richard Linklater movie like Dazing and Confused or like Before Sunset or something where it's just all about the way these or Before Sunrise where all it's all about the way these people talk about things. And it's just about the art of conversation. Like, they're very heightened, not realistic. Like, Do the Right Thing is, like, the least realistic movie. But what what makes something like Malcolm X work versus what Oliver Stone does? Well, well, I I can say exactly what makes Malcolm X work. Malcolm X subverts um, everything about Hollywood prestige movies is about making an audience uh, feel good that they're on the right side of history. It's all about... Here's terrible things that did happen. And aren't you glad that we don't do that anymore? And it pats him on the back. And Malcolm X has the exact same moves and the exact same triumphant music, but it's all about white the white man being the devil and about us living yeah. in a in a in a and it's a and it's about a, a white supremacist society that we live in and it's all of these things like that Malcolm X believed that are actually that were actually truly radical <clears throat> sure. and still are truly radical. And but he gives them the same gravitas of Abraham Lincoln giving a speech about how slavery is wrong. Like, but instead it's just like these little school children learning that the white man is literally the devil. And I mean that is subversive. Like Malcolm X is a really cool movie in that way. Yeah, I would agree. I know there's people out there who are detractors because they feel like he is soapboxing a lot, and mm-hmm. I don't agree with that. I mean, no, I think he is soapboxing a lot, but I just. Somehow he. Gets I don't know away why. It. It, I don't know why it works. I mean, it doesn't work for me in Bamboozled, but mm-hmm. something like Do the Right Thing. I'm like, I yeah. mean, that's not even my problem with Bamboozled. My problem with Bamboozled is just the story yeah. and the characters don't work. Yeah, no, that's true. But I like the parts of Bamboozled where they're just having conversations about race or whatever. I don't know. Do the right thing. It's great. What's your number seven? It's my my version of a great comedy, and it's still my favorite Scorsese movie. And we talked about this pretty early on in the show where you're like, you're crazy. Why could this, how could this be better than Goodfellas? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's After Hours. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most energetic movies I've ever seen. It's uh, kind of about emasculation. Yeah. And uh, it just, it's, it's, it's just creepy and funny at the same time. Like, there's just weird situations he gets very, in. It is a very, when I saw it, by the way, when I saw it, the first thing I thought was, oh, I was wrong. This is an amazing movie. But also when I saw it, what I thought was, oh, this makes 100% sense why this is Jim's favorite Scorsese movie. Because it is, it's maybe the most Jim movie I've ever seen. 
in terms of its sensibility, like it, not in terms of like it has shitty sense of humor and puns and stuff, but in terms of just like, in terms of it, the not just it's not just the fact that it's absurdist, but its specific brand of absurdism. When I was watching it, I was just like, Jim, that's Jim. Okay, I get it now. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, After Hours to me is the most Jim Leskowski movie ever made. Wow. Now I want to watch it again. Yeah. <laughs> Because, um, I mean, I, I have moments like that, but... I feel this... like if you ever made a movie, this is what it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I feel like After well, Hours is in your soul. That's actually what um, I wanted to do at one point. I was yeah. like, I want to make a version of After Hours as if it were directed by David Lynch. That was, like, my uh-huh. the thought I had in my head, where it's just somebody running into really fucked up, crazy people. Um, and, again, like, I... I don't know what like it's it is a movie that I kind of watch and just and there's a reason why I think it's also a me movie it's like out of all the movies on my list this is the one I've shown to the most people like as friends yeah. in, in high school and like I'm like sit down it, watch this movie It's funny how you can take ownership of movie like I definitely feel I that have. way about compu- <laughs> about computer chess and Martha Marcy May Marlene I feel like I I feel like I'm responsible for that movie in some regard because I've had to tell so many people why it's great and I've had to evangelize. It's funny how that can like just mm-hmm. become part of your experience of the movie. Yeah. No, like all the characters he runs into, the weird eerie score, um there it's it's a whole it's again, it's kind of this other movie that does has an ex- has did not exist before mm-hmm. and may not ever exist again. Well, I mean there are movies now. I'm I don't know if there were movies like it before, but I feel like after Hours is a film. Has it influenced others? Yeah, I feel like it's the structure. Of, the structure of After Hours is a typical comedy structure now. Like I feel like Super Bad mm, yeah. and and yeah, no. the Hangover movies and stuff like that are all basically trying to do a more comedy forward version of After Hours that's less weird and less interesting. But like, I feel like those movies are just. I think I have described a movie as After Hours esque. Yeah, I, I think, think that's that, I happened. Think suddenly, Manhattan. Oh yeah, well that yeah, that's kind of a direct I think homage to it uh-huh. for sure. Um, yeah, after hours. But there, yeah, there you're, you you are right. That there's nothing movie. like it. Yeah, nothing comes close. There's nothing in The Hangover or Super Bad or even a crazy action movie like Running Scare. Like there's so many movies that are just about <laughs> things spiraling out of control, but none of them capture it the same way that After Hours does. Yeah, and they also don't have this like moment of pause where two characters just dance to a Peggy Lee song in its entirety after all this energy and craziness mm-hmm. and wackiness it just slows it down to let two characters mm-hmm. share a moment together it just feels like Scorsese exhaling yeah pretty <laughs> like, much it just feels like it just poured out of him it did because he couldn't get Last Temptation of Christ yeah. funded so this, this, was is, like, this, this is, is like his Barton Fink yeah I was about to say that's Scorsese's Barton Fink exactly that'd be a good list of movies to create uh, my number seven is Halloween, and it's Halloween. Yeah, it is, that should be on my it's, list, too. It is my favorite horror movie, unless you count another movie I'll be talking about later, which is Borderline. It is Never just, heard of the movie Borderline. I mean, I grew up I grew up in the suburbs, and to me, mm-hmm. the thing that makes the suburbs scary is thinking about Michael My- Myers around a tree, or behind a bush, or, or around a guy the corner. Standing or, in the or, or a guy in the goddamn alley. Oh, he's, he's gone. No, we don't know where he is. Now nah, he's probably hanging out in the back of your car, and you're going to be all fogged up. You can go, eh, eh, what I the? Hope, nah. uh, 
stinger. Just wait for the stinger because it always happens a couple seconds. Like, I hope he first gives me a beef sandwich. I have a taste for a beef sandwich. Like if he just before he killed me said this is your last. What meal. is that a reference to? I don't know. It's you another just, barbecue sauce moment. Sorry. You just, <laughs> what? I had to have a barbecue sauce moment on this episode. I, I guess just, so. I guess it just happened random. Do you randomly. want barbecue beef? Is that what you? Need? No, it's okay. Okay, Halloween is. And everyone knows why Halloween is great, and I love Halloween. I, I got it in fifth grade. I got it on VHS, and it. Oh, I guess Texas Chainsaw didn't make any of our, either of our lists. No, no, no. Texas Chainsaw, unfortunately, there's a little bit of the interactions between characters feels a little janky uh-huh. and just like some of the acting's a I little guess. off. I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the greatest films ever, but ultimately, I had to choose one '70s horror movie, um, and I had to choose Halloween. Um, because I think there, I mean, not to say that all the performances in Halloween are amazing, but I think that the way that the girls are written in Halloween is very recognizable and very human. And I think mm-hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis is really good in it, but, um, no, it's just Halloween's transcendent. It's, I, it's, it kept me up. I, I got halfway through it the first time I watched it. Uh, I t- probably definitely told this story on the podcast before but I snuck downstairs because my mom said alright I'll buy this for you or I had a Suncoast video gift card so I bought it and she was like okay you can buy this but you have to wait till the weekend to watch it so you don't have any nightmares and you don't get any sleep for school and I go okay deal and then that night I went I ran downstairs I snuck downstairs while my parents were sleeping and I put it on and I got halfway through it to the point where he's like peering at Lori behind a tree or something and I turned it off and I was too scared to get up off the couch because I was afraid that he'd get me (laughs) I was so scared, and, and eventually, I, I like I just turned it off. And I was like, one, two, three. I ran upstairs and jumped into my bed and put the covers over my head, and it's been scaring me ever since. I seen it. I've seen it on the big screen twice, and it's scary both times. Certainly a better movie than Nightmare on Elm Street, although Nightmare on Elm Street was my experience with like oh yeah first being insanely scared and afraid to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. But um oh I guess Halloween's I guess I great. saw Halloween before I saw. Um, I guess I saw Halloween before I saw uh, Scream. So I guess Halloween was the first rated R horror movie. But at any rate, Scream was the first contemporary rated mm-hmm. R horror movie I saw. Um, so anyway, that's Halloween. What's your number six? It's a movie that used to be number one for a while. We got five other movies that have beat it. Oh, wow. Again, I-, I could watch it tonight and say, you know what? No, this is my number one. Because I would say like one through nine. Like I think you feel that way about your top five. Mm-hmm. But... Really, like all these movies, at some point, probably could be number one, and it's Paris, Texas. Oh yeah, um, it's Vim Vender's best movie, and has one of my favorite moments in a movie ever with the monologue uh, through the plate glass. Yeah, the one-way. Yeah. Mirror. And when their faces combine, chills. Um, everything about it, I love. Um, yeah, we talked about it extensively on the Vim Vender's episode. We sure did. And I've talked about it a lot. Yeah. So everybody knows how I feel about this movie by now. And yeah, it's, it is definitely a movie that makes me feel dumb. Because <laughs> I don't get it, but... And MVP to Dean Stockwell. I think he's really good in this movie. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I really do. I mean, he's not playing the typical judgmental brother right. figure, you know? I like that he's, you know, a simple guy trying to understand his brother without, like, chastising him. Mm-hmm. You know? I think... Like, the only, only, only weak element is the wife of Dean Stockwell. Like, she's just, meh. Yeah. She's probably just the weak link, but 
I love the father-son stuff. I love when he goes to uh, find his mom. and I don't know. It's one of those lost soul movies that really, really gets to me. Yeah. And has inspired a lot of people over the years. Sure. Yeah. My number six is Grand Illusion. <gasps> the other foreign language film. Uh, Renoir. Jean Renoir. Um, it is... As, I mean, I'm a pacifist. I'm very anti-war, anti-military. And I'm very... And this, is, to me, is the best anti-war, anti-classism film ever made. Um, it's a 30s film, but it the cinematic techniques, like the camera never stops moving. It's a beautiful, really startlingly directed film. Um, but the script is just incredible. And the, the ending is amazing. Everything about this movie, I mean, I wish I could say more detailed things, but I, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but... Everything about this movie, it's to me like, this is a very, this is in my soul. Like, okay, this is this is how I feel about things. Someone made a war movie for me, and it's called Grand Illusion. Have you seen it? Guess what I'm going to be doing tonight. You're going to watch Grand Illusion? Mm-hmm. Have you seen it? No. Do you want to borrow it? Okay. Okay, I'll lend it to you. I'm surprised that I don't have it yet, but yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, well, there's a lot to have. <laughs> rules of the game. Yeah, I if you I've believe it, that. I haven't seen Rules of the Game. Oh. So, good. it's really good. Yeah, I've actually seen several other Renoir movies and I've been saving Rules of the Game. Mhm. Very Altman. Yeah. Well, I mean, Renoir was one of the main influences on Altman. Renoir had a lot of improvisation and and uh stuff like that in hmm. his movies. Okay. Yeah. Um I that was kind of like a um a note to self anyway. It was like Whatever is the highest... I mean, there could be another one maybe on your list that I haven't seen, but I said whatever movie is the highest on Patrick's list, I'm going to go home and watch that, that I haven't you've seen. seen. The, you've seen the rest? Yes, most okay. likely. So give me your number five. Punch Drunk Love. Okay. These next two movies feature my favorite director and my favorite screenwriter. So Punch Drunk Love. I, Who are the same man? I don't... No. Um, no, I talk... Um, I did this very cool... Um, movie club podcast where I talked about Popeye and Punch Drunk Love and I would like there have been moments on our podcast where I'm like wow that's some pretty good insight Jim good job Mm -hmm. you did all right. you're not dumb yeah and I would say that the movie club podcast episode where I introduced Punch Drunk Love is where I felt that too so I'm very happy with like me just sort of defining why I think this is so yeah search for movie club Popeye Punch Drunk Love pretty much because I don't want to go on and on and on about It's my why. favorite. It's definitely my uh, favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. If, yep. only, if only because it has the least amount of things I don't like in it. Yep. Um, it's, it's perfect. Yeah, it's really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. And it's odd now because I work next to a mechanic and I have a, a garage door opening. Uh-huh. And uh, one uh, a customer... And people like, drop off stuff at the curb. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I got a harmonium. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's weird. I've, and every now and then I hear the flagpole hitting, and it sounds just like the sound you hear at the beginning of Punch Drunk Love when he thinks he's here something outside, and he keeps, what is that noise? Or if it's that the truck that's mm-hmm. coming by? or I don't know what it is, but if you listen, sound design is impeccable in that movie, but yeah. everybody knows that... This is as good as it gets for me. Not not literally as good as it gets the movie. Yeah, but. as good as it gets is your number four. No, it's not. My number... F- okay, so my top five, they are all tied for my favorite film, so I'm just going to give them alphabetically. So number five is Annie Hall. 
Um, it's an encyclopedia of cinematic technique. It's one of the funniest movies ever made. It's really, really insightful about relationships. It's beautifully directed. It's really well acted. Um, it's endlessly inventive. This is the movie that I exploded my brain in eighth grade, and I was like, oh, movies! They're this thing! <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, man. So, Annie Hall, I if you haven't seen it... <laughs> you're stupid. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you're a dumb, dumb fucking idiot. It's Annie Hall. It's incredible. Everyone knows that Annie Hall's great, and it's better than Star Wars, and that's why it won Best Picture. Well, yeah. End. Of course it is. Everybody knows that, I hope. Okay, so what's your number four, Jim? By the way, if you want to hear more on that, just listen to the last favorite episode or favorite movies episode. Oh yeah, was that my number one at the time, or was that my number two? I think it was your number one. Yeah, because that and because Woody Allen and Altman switch places, and Annie Hall and McKay and Mrs. Miller switch places. Where's Falling Down and Step Brothers on your list? Yeah, I forgot Falling Down. I mean, it didn't end up making. It. I still love both those movies. They're still two of my favorites. Yeah, I know. Though there's probably a lot till that I didn't make my list that I've probably mentioned on this episode. I haven't wa- you know what? I haven't watched Step Brothers in a year or more. I haven't watched Step Brothers in like two years because Regina hates Step Brothers so oh, much. Oh, no. Yeah. Because wow. before Carly, who was my old girlfriend, Carly loved Step Brothers. We saw it in theaters together. Oh. And we both... That was just a movie we put on all the time. So, like, that was the movie. So that was just... I watched it all the time because we both loved it and now that stepbrothers is now that now that regina doesn't like stepbrothers i i not that i'll never watch it again but it's certainly less uh it's less encouraging to, uh environment to put it on so you guys are just gonna watch duke of burgundy over and over and over again yeah duke of burgundy <laughs> upstream color you know comedies <laughs> yeah pretty much <laughs> speaking of comedies what's your number four or an anti-comedy is uh synecdoche new york mm-hmm um, I, I've talked about this at least three times throughout our podcast sure. episodes. And well, it came out. It's one of the rare films that came out during the course of us making it. Now it came out in two thousand eight. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm a dummy. Okay, go on. Um, Charlie Kaufman. Well, it came out. It came out while we knew each other. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, for sure. So it came up in our conversations a lot, even before yeah. we were in the podcast. Um, one of my. Film critic heroes, Nick DiGiulio, hates this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of my f- film critic heroes, Roger Ebert, thought it was the best movie of the decade. Yeah. So there are, you know, reasons to love it, reasons to hate it, <laughs> because people can hate this movie, and I can understand that. It's another sort of puzzle that I don't know if I can entirely solve, but as a mood piece, as something that moves me beyond words... And especially now that Philip Seymour Hoffman is gone, um, it's just oh, again I am feel I feel speechless because of how I feel about this movie. I wish I could help you, but I, I know nothing about it. <sighs> I own it. I've seen it once, but I have to I have to be honest. I wasn't really into it, and I haven't watched it since. It's probably really amazing. I probably should watch it again. I don't know. Like I can understand people having a disconnect with yeah. it, like going. What's the deal with the house on fire? It definitely isn't as funny as it's not as the other two. But it's also a movie about the passage films. of time, yeah. and you really have to pay attention at the beginning because I didn't realize this the first two times I saw it. But there, it's pretty much the same scene, but 
if you look at the newspaper that Phil Seymour Hoffman is reading, time keeps jumping really fast. And that sort of happens throughout the movie where he loses track of time. He loses track of how his daughter is aging. Um, I think it's just a movie about life going really fast and not knowing how to keep up with it, but also um, about mortality, uh, about um, being really Mm -hmm. self-absorbed, wanting to create art that is reflective of yourself, but that almost being impossible to do. And... Yet, I can see people criticizing this movie for being really uh, quirky and strange and unclear at times, and just being like having just these weird cutaways or weird non sequiturs and not knowing exactly what they mean. Um, things just sort of happening out of context. And like, there's certain moments where, like, even the therapist gives him a book. And as he's reading the book on the plane, she's telling him what the book is saying, and then the book just ends, and she says, this is where the book ends. And then blank pages for the rest of the book. They're just like these weird, surreal things throughout this entire movie. But I also think it's a portrayal of mental deterioration, maybe even to some degree dementia, Uh, because I'm really unclear as what Philip Seymour Hoffman is going through, other than sort of like, again, another existential dilemma, crisis of sorts. But it really is... He is so um, solipsistic. Yeah. And he loses track of his relationships. And, you know, he's kind of lost within himself. And there's also just this weird theory that it's a movie about being transgender. Uh-huh. Because there's a lot of um, references to him being a woman. And, like, um, at one point, one of his wives says, It smells like you're menstruating. And just like these weird things thrown at you randomly that I don't really know if they all make, if they all cohesively come together. But as a movie that works for me, as a mood piece, is something that really uh, infuses me with sadness, um, similar to It's Such a Beautiful Day. So I think New York is it. Yeah. I gotta see it again. Fucking one of the best ensemble of casts, too. Uh, you know, everybody in it's great. And I can understand again if you don't love it, that's fine. But uh, it's another gym movie, yeah, through and through. Um, my number four, we talked about a lot on a recent episode. So McCabe, and Mrs. Miller. Oh yeah, I've heard is, of it. Uh, yeah, it's McCabe, and Mrs. Miller. It's my favorite western. It's one of my favorite character studies. Everything about Warren Beatty um, is really incredible. Everything about Leonard Cohen's music. Everything about Robert Altman's photography. Everything about this movie is just really transcendent. Um, yeah, I talked about this a lot on the Altman episode. You should listen to that. It's it uh, is really, really, really moving in ways I can't even say. Um, but you know, there's a lot of, especially in the '70s and like New Hollywood, there's a lot of character pieces that were about. Um, independent thinkers struggling against corporations and it's like oh, I wonder what you guys are writing about <laughs> you know like and I mean a lot of those movies are tremendous like uh, you know uh, the killing of a Chinese bookie is is definitely about uh, mm-hmm. the way Cassavetes feels about Hollywood and oh yeah um, I think McCabe and Mrs. Miller is the greatest one of those movies um, it'd be in my top 100 for sure um, yeah it's 
I just I can't get over how good it is. But I talked a lot about it recently, and it's kind of exhausting to talk about. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask you what your number three is. It is possibly the best movie that we saw throughout our podcast. Okay. Upstream Color. I believe it. Yep. I believe it. And it's also something that I'm also scared to see again. I've seen it twice, but I'm uh-huh. scared to see it a third time. Yeah. Um, you, know, it's, put, it's, you know, I put that on at work the other day. And um, I put it on at work the other day. And so I was, while I was doing stuff, and then I just sort of realized that I was crying, like, ten minutes <laughs> yeah. into it. And I was like, all right, this is not happening. No. I can't be fucking crying at work because I heard music that reminds me of everything. Yeah, pretty much. Um, everything about Upstream Color is amazing. I'm going to talk about that later. And I think Upstream Color and It Follows are tied for best score. Like, they're yeah. my two favorite scores. Also, Punch Drunk Love. So, three. Um We've talked a lot about Upstream Color. I'll let Patrick have his final word on that. But it's my number three. My number three is Meet Me in St. Louis, which I think is the greatest musical of all time. Um, More than Singing in the Rain. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's uh, it's not as fun as Singing in the Rain, but it actually has like an emotional element to it. (laughs) Like Singing in the Rain, you couldn't give a shit about the characters. (laughs) Like they're just whatever. It's just a fun romantic comedy. But Meet Me in St. Louis has the greatest characters. It has the greatest numbers. It is the antithesis of what you think of when you think of a Hollywood MGM musical where everything is in this house. Or not all the musical numbers are in the house. There is the, you know, clang, clang, clang with the trolley and a few others. But, like, it's very subdued. It's very subversive. It's not about a small-time girl ending up in New York trying to make it big. It's about a small-time girl not wanting to leave the small town. It's Yeah, I think that's relatable. All the characters in it are amazing. Tootie is the greatest... um, child like uh hilariously precocious child character in history um the halloween section is one of my favorite segments of any movie ever um i love the music i love the way that vincent minnelli blocks everything and how he shoots crowded dance scenes in a living room just using depth so beautifully it's 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 one of the most like subtly um, incredible looking movies ever made but because it isn't Badlands because it isn't like these great sunsets because it's all on a sound stage and stuff you don't necessarily think of it as that but the way the camera is in that house mm. um, and just you know the way Technicolor in general looks oh of course looks, yeah the color is beautiful uh, I don't know if there's a Blu-ray of this but every Technicolor movie mm. I've seen on Blu-ray is like the most amazing looking thing ever so if there is a good Blu-ray of Meet Me in St. Louis I need it um, yeah it's it's just pure joy, but with, but in you know the classic kind of Capra sense, like there, though we, I think even pre Capra, um, or at least it was concurrent with Capra, but like before Capra sort of made his name on stuff like It's a Wonderful Life, it is uh, about the joy tinged with sadness, and it's about uh, the fear yeah. of change and anxieties, and and it's about. Women and it's all like female characters, and it's a great feminist movie about these fucking horny teenage girls who are like just unabashedly horny, and like that's great. I love that about it. Like everything about Meet Me in St. Louis just fills me with so much joy. Um, it is a movie I'm probably gonna watch every year for the rest of my life. Uh, I it's that's for me it's hear. a perfect Christmas 
movie. Yeah. Because even though it you know takes place, it's a good tradition. All across the you know all across different seasons and stuff. To me, it ends and in and winter. And have yourself a merry and have yourself a merry little oh. Christmas is a devastating number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but even that like it. It, Talk about something that changed the context of that song. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that song was written for that movie, so that was the yeah. original context. And I of always that song. heard it, and separately. Yeah. Without the the context of the movie, and then I saw that, I'm like, oh god. Yeah. The so key word is have yourself a merry little Christmas now. <laughs> you oh. know, because it might because it, it might be too late later. Um, yeah, yeah. There is, I, all of the, all of the humor is undercut by emotion. All of the. All of the sadness is undercut by joy. All of the joy has a weird subversive element. It is just the most... It is the most Vincent Minnelli movie ever made. I mean, obviously it's not cinematically as spectacular as something like An American in Paris or something, but as far as things that sum up all the things I like about Vincent Minnelli, uh, nothing beats Meet Me in St. Louis. And it's just... There are very few films that fill me with more joy. In fact, there's only one other film... That fills me with more joy, and it's the one I'm going to be talking about next. But before I do, what's your number two, Jim? It is by far the biggest surprise on this list. Without question. Even you're going to be like, what? Mm-hmm. It is, is it Home Improvement Season 3? Damn it. <laughs> um, I just rewatched this this past week, and I remember when I saw it the first time with um, my girlfriend Amy. She loved this movie, and I thought it was just okay. Time has gone on, um, third or fourth. I want to say fourth time seeing this. Um, it it's it's a movie that I go okay. I want to write a movie like this someday, because I know these people, and it seems like a nice low key simple movie. But the emotions are insane. Like you just know these people. They're so complex. It's a movie called You Can Count on Me. Okay. No, I know you like this movie. I didn't, oh. I didn't know it was your number two, but it's not like so shocking. It's not a movie you didn't like. I don't like. even know if it was in my top 100 before, but I uh, I think Kenneth Lonergan's script. I need to read his plays. Uh, I mean, Margaret was just underwhelming because of how much I really loved You Can Count On Me, and maybe it's just that movie went through so much shit in terms of it not being edited right or went through the studio heads and it didn't turn out the way he wanted or whatever, but... Um, you Can Count On Me is kind of on this whole other level of a simple brother-sister relationship drama that's kind of low-key and also um, full of complexity in the relationship she has with her son, the relationship she has with her brother, the relationship she has with her boss. All these um, things I can recognize has happened to other people or to myself. And I think Mark Ruffalo, as much as I've liked him over the years, this is by far his best performance. And Laura Linney, who is an actress I've liked, this is one of my favorite performances ever. And a lot of that has to do with just like a simple moment of her driving in her car after having an affair with her boss and her having different reactions to that affair within that scene. Um, Her crying and her laughing and her hesitancy... And it's a, it's a movie about unresolved issues and how they're always going to live within us. And the brother was never wanting to straighten up, and so he goes off and says, I'm going to Alaska, and maybe I'll figure myself out or I won't. And, you know, she's going to stay in that small town, but she recognizes that as a possible 
setback or something that she doesn't really want to do but she feels compelled to do because she doesn't see herself out there um, in the world that he sees himself. And there's the best scene involving a priest played by the writer himself where he's sort of you think it's going to go one way where he wants to get Mark Ruffalo sort of indoctrinated or at least interested in his church but he says like the most human thing um, about how we're all flawed and we need to find something outside of ourselves to connect to and it doesn't have to be God it can be whatever you want Mm -hmm. and that's how I felt in my life and you know, I've told people that philosophy, and they kind of shrug it off as like, eh, you don't, you know, you know, they don't have any strong convictions. And this movie, to me, is about having a lack of strong convictions, and that's okay. And it's sort of like one of those movies that sort of fits with my life at this point in time. The dialogue is incredible. The first dinner scene they have together is beautiful and yet full of intense emotion and drama, and you don't even have to know like specifically what all their problems are, other than, like, this is what happens when you lose a parent, or two parents, and how you grow up dysfunctional, and unsure of yourself. So, I think this is the best screenplay, and something I can see myself doing in life. Like, I can write a movie about characters similar to this, and it doesn't have to be like a Magnolia sort of... Um, over-the-top soap opera kind of world. It's just a very simple, recognizable, small-town feel. And I loved it. I love it more than Paris, Texas, and I never thought that would happen, but it's true. Um, you know, I've, I've rented this movie four times, and I've never watched it. When I, when I worked at Blockbuster, I, I took it out three separate times uh, and then just didn't get around to watching it. And then when I worked... And then, and then after that, later from the library, I checked it out as well, and I never watched it. It's a movie that... I've constantly had on the tip of my fingers. Um, <laughs> but I haven't seen it. Um, yeah. I I do want you to watch this and Margaret sometime. Mike yeah. D'Angelo loves the shit out of Margaret. And yeah. I want to love it. I just want this guy to do something else, too. I just, I just think he's one of the best writers. And I want to read his plays and whatever else he's done, because this movie really speaks to me. And who's the writer? Kenneth Lonergan. Oh, so he's the director as well, right? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's only done this and Margaret, and he's got one more, hopefully, coming out. So my number two movie is the only other movie that... The only movie that fills me with more joy than Meet Me in St. Louis, and that's Stop Making Sense. Oh, um, yeah. that is. This is a movie... Good call. I just see in theaters every time it plays in theaters, and it's luckily just become a movie that plays about once a year in Chicago. Um, and it's just like going to the greatest concert of all time uh it's the music is incredible it's one of the greatest bands of all time at the peak of their career um which you can't really say about any other concert film uh, yeah i mean i've yet to see it in the theater you know like uh you can should. you can say that scorsese does interesting things with last waltz but ooh, who wants to listen to the band um no <laughs> Uh, whereas the Talking Heads are just the greatest, and these are the greatest versions of, of like fourteen of their greatest songs. Mm-hmm. And when you see it in a theater, you sit in your seat and you watch the film. And they slowly build the band. It starts with just a, a tape recording of drums and an acoustic guitar as David Byrne plays a a solo version of Psycho Killer. And then they add a bass. Uh, Tina Weymouth comes out, and they do a Heaven. Uh, and then um, and then the drummer comes out whose name I can't remember at the moment 
but the drummer comes out and then they play stop uh thank you for sending an angel um and then it just slowly adds people to the band and they're building it and then as they're building it it's sort of building up an energy and then somewhere in the midway point of the movie uh they play uh life during wartime and it's the greatest mm-hmm. live performance of any song ever maybe like just incredible choreography and energy as David Byrne just does full sprint laps around the stage again and again and again and then returns to the microphone to sing after all of that. Like, he must have been in the best shape of his life to be able to do that. And at that point, when he's running in place, that's when the audience gets out of their seats and they run towards the screen. And this has happened, I've seen it three times in theaters, and this has happened two of the three times where the audience gets out of their seats and they're running around and it just becomes a wild party where... You know, during yeah. a nice slow song, you slow dance in the aisles, and and then what, during the crazy songs, you run up to the front and you are reaching out towards the screen like they're on, you know, like they're on stage. And um, at a certain Damn, point, these two li- at a certain point, these two little girls who you know, I'm guessing their parents took them to see Stop Making Sense. These two little girls were just running up and down the aisles, high fiving everyone, Aww. and it's just the greatest theater. Like, when I'm watching it, I'm just like, oh, I've never felt this way ever. This is the greatest film of all time. And that's sort of how I feel about all five of these movies. But Probably an even better theatrical experience than The Room and Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, yeah. I mean, those are... <laughs> I'm just joshing. Okay. I'm just, you know, people who like those things, they can like those things. That's fine. But I can't stand the, um, the, the lack of spontaneity. <laughs> to, like, yeah. the thing about uh, Stop Making Sense is there isn't a... You know, it's slowly people get up the courage to leave their seats. There are there are definitely people who have been there a lot and they know what's going to happen. But even though I've been there three times, every time I'm like, I get a little nervous about getting up out of my seat. And it's only after a certain point that I'm like, okay, let's get out. Let's start dancing. Let's go. Um, and it, it feels spontaneous and it feels natural and it just feels like a joyous collective event and... I'm sure a lot of concerts feel like that for people who aren't tall and don't feel like they're constantly in everyone's way when they go to a concert like I do. Or like when I saw Slater Kinney and I just kept thinking about the guy who is stomping on my feet the whole time. Uh, <laughs> like, like I just – I can't go to actual concerts because they're too crowded and they cost too much and they – and I, I'm too neurotic to enjoy them. But Stop Making Sense – I imagine is the best version of a concert experience and it's uh, replicatable and Jonathan Demi did does an amazing weird things with it like mm-hmm. it's not edited like a music video he edits off the beat so and it's just it's very stark looking there's not a really elaborate stage show but at the same time there is some kind of stage show and it's really really incredible and if you ever get a chance to see it on the big screen then fucking drive five hours to a different city if you have to, but see Stop Making Sense on the big screen, because it is a... I there's nothing to, like it. I want it to be a yearly tradition for the music box to do this. Are they doing this It's anymore? not a necessarily, like, here it comes again, but it, they have played it the last three years. Okay. So I'm assuming that it's something I'm they try going. to do. I don't care what happens this year. I'm going! Yeah, you should. Um, it's really great. Uh, yeah, Stop Making Sense is definitely my favorite movie. So, as most people might know by now, especially if you listen to the John Houston episode, I have a new favorite movie. Yeah, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Good job. Uh How'd you guess? I had to cut it off. (laughs) 
I didn't know how long you were going to go for the number one. So you tell me about... I, 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 talked about, I talked about it on the episode, but... I want to know this. Before you start talking about Treasure of Sierra Madre, you said that your favorite movie at any given day could be any points one through nine. <sighs> Pretty much. So what is it about that... or Because I just had to pick alphabetical order, just so... What is it about... I don't know. Treasure I, of the Sierra Madre that right now that's the number one spot. Because I have no complaints. I have no nitpicks. I watched it twice in preparation for the John Houston episode, which I don't think ever happened with a movie before. I love every performance. I like the action sequences. I love the dialogue. Um, it's just a perfect movie in the way I think a lot of people can... You know, say, oh yeah, Jaws. That's kind of a perfect movie, yeah, isn't yeah. it? And I, I, I don't normally put like a wham bam escapist entertainment adventure action movie as my number one, and I think it's 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 long overdue. But in a way, like I love movies, and this sort of represents what got me into movies. Even if it's not Back to the Future, it's still uh, an originating form of the kind of escapist action entertainment that got me hooked on movies and if I'd seen this maybe when I was seven it might still be my favorite movie yeah it's very possible um and I I think like I let my emotions get the best of me sometimes you don't think it would have bored you when you were seven no I don't think so it would have bored me when I was seven it's not a boring movie no it's not it's not I love Humphrey Bogart I love everything in this movie I love Walter Houston I love just the overarching theme of you know, not necessarily like greed corrupts, but it can to yeah. one person, not to everybody, but to one person. Um, so it really is just like everything I can want in a movie. And I probably will watch it every year and feel the same way. But I mean, like I would say that, yeah, maybe two through nine are the most emotional experiences I've had with movies or the ones I connect with in a, like on a psychological level. I guess, but like they just sort of speak to me, like, oh, I went through that or I understand that. Treasure of America is just a perfect movie. It's <laughs> <laughs> a perfect movie. <laughs> I lost all my teeth. For yeah. a second. Treasure of America is a it's a fun series of syllables. Mm-hmm. They knew what they were doing when they named it that. Done. Mic drop. Boom. <laughs> don't do it. Don't drop my mic. No. Um, my number one uh, is Upstream Color. Is that because you comes after S? <laughs> <laughs> so, upstream color is the single- the only time we both agreed on the best movie that year. But. Yeah, it's it's everything. It's mm-hmm. every. It's all all things that I like about movies. Um, sort of converge in it. I yeah. mean, it isn't every. It's not escapist entertainment, but it is. Uh, it is constantly surprising. It's, it's an intellectual experience. It's an emotional experience. It's yeah. It's, it's it's baffling. It's it's weird the way it's made. The way it's edited mm-hmm. is uh, is just uh, lots of strange choices. There are parts of it that I there's parts of it that really really deeply resonate with me. That just make a hundred like some of the, even the more surreal parts of it make a hundred percent emotional sense. And then there are also surreal parts of it that I don't quite understand or even have a theory for how they fit into my quote-unquote reading of the movie. Like, there are just some loose ends of it, but every second of it is utterly captivating. Um, yeah. 
and it's just like on a moment to moment basis it's incredible on a broader basis it's the most cathartic emotional experience I've ever had in a movie theater I watched it twice in the theaters I, I've seen it three times since then um, and for a movie that's you know as uh, puts you through the ringer like Upstream Color does that's saying a lot um, and it's also invigorating it's like you know a movie you can say that's has a profound effect on you emotionally but it's not draining I mean I think I'm like I'm scared to relive that emotional experience that I had watching this movie because I do, in much like it's such a beautiful day, feel a lot all at once um, and feel for myself, for, for different people, for the characters. And it's, it's everything. <laughs> it's just a movie that I like. I experience so much um, joy in the fact that this movie was made, but also um, a lot of sadness mm-hmm. and uh, regret and understanding and empathy. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately, maybe that's what the final shot is all about empathy. Maybe. I I think it's about loss. <laughs> I think it's about I think it's about there's a part of you that's now missing and maybe it's somewhere else yeah. and you can hold it as close to you as you can but it's never going to be part of you. Mm. Um, and it's also taking care of it because there's this sort of uh, maternal nurturing. Yeah, yeah, there's like a nur- nurturing maternal sort of image. It's it it works on so many levels at the same time and I don't know. It's just like the greatest. It's just one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Um, are you okay with Shane Carruth's performance? Yeah. Because there are people who just like, eh. That's fine. I mean, it's not... The kind of movie it is, it requires a more functional performance because any kind of performance is sure. going to get lost. I mean, his character has less emotional scenes than Amy uh, Semitz does. And so right. she does most of the heavy lifting. Certainly. Uh, but he is not a bad actor. Um, at all uh, I don't think yeah I don't think he has to do much of the heavy lifting I don't think he gives a bad performance though I'm beyond impressed that he did pretty much everything you're right that's something that I he must can't just be I, like, I, the idea of even talking to him is so intimidating <laughs> like I mean I was at a screening of this with a Q&A with him and I can't even recall if I asked a question I think I probably I did. Could, I don't know. I think I, I did ask him a question. I, don't I think I could after seeing this for the first I, time. I, but what I asked him was just some other thing. Like I asked him because I because it took me a second viewing to actually understand what it was about or what it quote unquote is about to me. Um, but it was that it was. But I think so. The first time I just asked him like what what the difference between writing a movie that is so dialogue driven like Primer and a movie that is so image driven like Upstream Color was. And then he sort of, I think he just said, like, eh, it's about the same. <laughs> like, it, wasn't, it wasn't an interesting, I didn't get any insight in there. Um, it was funny at that Q&A, he was like, everyone was sort of asking questions about it as if it was, like, just some sort of uh, Tarkovsky, like, completely impenetrable movie. And he kept, like, sort of insisting, like, you know, this is actually a very straightforward movie. I think... I think the you guys are going to get it. Like, that way. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's more straightforward. There's still parts of it that I think are less straightforward than he's oh, implying. Yeah. But no, it's upstream color. It's, I mean, I've rambled on about this movie for a long time now. Yeah, just listen to our best of 2013. 2012. Or 2013. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's great. It's yeah. upstream color. Um, and I think, you know, if you put upstream color and stop making sense and meet me in St. Louis and McCabe, Mrs. Miller and Annie Hall and Grand Illusion and Halloween and Badlands and do the right thing and Sunset Boulevard 
and computer chess and Carnival of Souls. I think if you like sort of put all those in a blender, uh, you would get would come a really you get a really gross smoothie that is roughly the flavor of my taste in movies. <laughs> like, I like that. Yeah, um, and I, I like smoothies too, so that helps. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, you can put some kale in there if you want. Yeah. Treasure Sierra Madre, You Can Count on Me, Upstream Colors, Synecdoche, New York, Punch Drunk Love, Paris, Texas, After Hours, The Apartment. It's such a beautiful day. You got a gym shake. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to try not to change this list for at least a year. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to... I'm This list... I didn't even save this. This is a text document that I just had open since last night when I wrote it, and then I'm going to delete it, and then it's going to be gone. What? Because I don't keep I don't keep track of these things. It's very arbitrary. I mean, you heard how arbitrary I made the list to begin with. You can always put it on Letterbox. What if people are curious? Uh, okay. Well, I guess I'll send you an email with it. All right. Um, I can put it in the show notes. There you go. Uh, if you want. I mean, if you want to, if you want to just put the list there and not have people guess what they're going to be. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good point. This has been a four-hour and 15-minute episode of Director's Club. We'll see what the future holds in store. Yeah, I mean, it's not the last episode. I still have bonus episodes to do. Indeed. Including possibly one with me. Right. So, um, I think that would be be better. I think it'd be better. If I I just did it alone after seeing... I mean, maybe I'll love Pump Up the Volume. Maybe... I'll just be raving about Uh, how much I love it. But I'm just saying, uh, I think it would probably be better if you are there. Yeah... I mean, I'm definitely nervous, so that'll bring us full circle to oh, say anything. Yeah, there you go. Because, like, if you if you think it's shit, then I'll be like... Yeah, I'm gonna... Like, I hope I love it. I mean, I hope I like every movie. I hope I you see. at least I don't, like I don't it. watch any movies hoping I hate him. Yeah, exactly. That guy is in the alley again. Um, Perfect. But if I'm gonna make a, a, a guess... I'm gonna say... I'm gonna say three, I'm not gonna be into it. I'm going to say three stars out of five. B minus? Yeah. Yeah. That's my guess right now. I think that's probably a safe guess. I don't think you're going to hate it. Yeah. I don't know if you'll love it. Because, again, I think it's a generational thing. That's fine. Because everybody in sort of my um, age group thinks it's a classic. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not everybody. Well, not everybody, but like in my peer group of oh, sorts. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, well, it was uh, hopefully <laughs> that <laughs> list of... Uh, 50 movies uh, sort of says something about us and was illuminating uh, yeah. to people. I think people like lists and uh, sort of a kind of overall view, even if it's, you know, obviously arbitrary and can change at any moment. Yeah. Uh, it's just a nice summary. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, it doesn't mean that I'm going to stop. Or Patrick's going to stop, or we're going to stop together. We could come back in maybe a year or to, or so with the same format, but we don't know yet. Yeah. It's just we, t- we got to take uh, a breather. Um, I know I'm at least going to take a month off entirely. I mean, I'll join you, obviously, for your bonus episode, but I'm going to take a month off to sort of just decide what I want to do, and if I want to create a new website, that's something I definitely would want for the next round mm-hmm. or so. But we'll see. Um, we are incredibly appreciative of all the positive feedback we've gotten. Oh, sure. It's it's a, it's an honor that so many people enjoy this. Yeah. It's been overwhelming at times and uh, humbling and sweet, and we just uh, greatly um, appreciate our fans. We have nothing but gratitude for people who've stuck around and, and put up with us yeah. and our taste and my puns. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, if if we do return, that will be missing. I'm gonna give Jim a lobotomy or something. <laughs> You're gonna edit it all up. Yeah, You're gonna edit out all the puns. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna edit out. Yeah, I'm gonna edit out that part of your brain using mm. <laughs> using ancient surgery techniques Why going through lo- your nose. Ah, eternal sunshine. What the fuck, Jim? Yeah. What's mm. that? Oh, you forgot eternal-, eternal sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. To be fair, it's not one of the it's not one of the best movies. Yeah. Oh, you want to go ahead? It. What 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 is a movie that everyone loves that you're not into? I want to I want to hear you trash a movie that people we can probably just do a fade out with this. <laughs> like what a but, movie? But that, go ahead. What is a movie that everyone is into and you just or that I, even I'm into that you just don't see it at all? Oh my god, that's a good question. Was there any movie I mentioned that you weren't that you don't like? Not actively. No, there wasn't like something I was like, ugh, why'd you choose that? Yeah. Like, I can even go with Step Brothers. But, I mean, the obvious choice, and it's not even beloved by everybody, but it's Devil's Rejects, really. Yeah. I still don't get it. At all. I'm No, I don't. I think it's shit. Mm-hmm. And that's how I've felt since episode two. I don't think anything's going to change my mind about it. And what song used... Uh, oh. Freebird? Yeah, Kingsman. Yeah, that used Freebird, too. And I didn't get Kingsman, and I know people love it. Uh, I think John Wick's just okay. And people seem to love that movie. Well, people will... There are people who see movies in the theaters every week. Yeah, I know. And like, that's mostly how they watch movies. I'm sure there's at least like a... Uh, like, a like a Dr. Shivako or Gone with the Wind that everybody loves that I don't. But I can't think of it off the top of my head. The only one that comes to mind is still Devil's Rejects. I think it's Paris, Texas for me. Oh, wow. But you don't actively hate it. No, I don't actively hate it. But I don't actively hate many movies. Even House of the Devil? No, I mean, I actively hate House of the Devil, but that's not a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't count. That movie's shit. <laughs> that's not a movie. That's not a movie. It's someone fucking sitting around waiting Order for a pizza. pizza. Um, Morty? It's one of my all-time favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just let me just ask you uh, a couple questions. One, um, how many close-ups of pig assholes do you see in uh, Godfather Part Two? None. How many close-ups of pig assholes do you see in Gordy? One. Uh, quite a few. <gasps> yeah. So uh, advantage Gordy. Oh my God. There's got to be some in Bay Pig in the City. No, I think they I think they like Sean. <laughs> <laughs> God, and I should have put the Road Warrior. Are you, are you, uh, that, that brings to mind the, the Sharon Stone of pigs. <laughs> it was like in the, the or Sharon Stone after Basic Instinct came out. Sharon Stone said that she didn't know that her vagina was visible, which is like rid- a ridiculous thing that she later took back. But like, I'm pretty sure they had to stop and light your vagina. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So like, but there's like a there's like a pig in Babe Pig in the City who's like, look, I didn't know my asshole would be showing. They told me that this is all implied pig asshole. Isn't that the same with Anne Heche in the Psycho remake? I still don't know what you're talking about with that. I've I've seen it once, and I feel like I've only seen there's it once. There's like maybe a split I, second of her asshole. I feel like you. I would have. I would remember seeing Anne Heche's butthole. You you bring this up all the time. This can't be real. Every conversation. I could. Be, I mean, I could be wrong. I've been wrong so many times in the past on this sort of thing. And it also became a huge thing on Kevin Smith's Hollywood Bitch Slap podcast, to where they created a jingle for it and everything. Uh huh. So it's got to be real. I guess so. I guess that's verifiable.
I'll download it and pause it and send you the screen cap. You don't have to. I own it. The Psycho Remake? Yeah. Well, maybe I sold it. I've owned it at some point. <laughs> Ugh.